sitting here at lovely Noonan, Georgia, 15 Perry Street. Really appreciate these guys allowing us to set up studio here with my sidekick, Paul Martinez. Hey, everybody. Um, we're joined now by Tommy Stoner. And, Tommy, we we actually scheduled you, I think, the last time we had a big go-round uh, was a couple months ago. And you were not able – we were talking about this pre-recording um, and stuff. You weren't able to make it. But I'm just glad that things worked out. We were able to reschedule you to get you back in because this is a really important topic, I think, for a lot of – especially soft veterans or soft that are getting out of the uh, the military. So – Looking forward to having a discussion. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. Yeah. Man, you've got a radio voice. Yeah. Yeah. You think I have another career? Maybe yes, I think you do. Part of my next transition <laughs> going to radio. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking before the show and you said you're from Colorado. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, was born in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. So the northwest side of Colorado. So a lot of people, if you drive, if, if you're from Colorado, you drive to Colorado. It's just north of Aspen. So if you're driving to Aspen, you got to go through Glenwood Springs. Did you so. do a lot of snow skiing and stuff in Aspen growing up? Or? <laughs> Not Aspen. Uh, you know, a little, little kind of rich. You know, it's kind of more a hike, hike to the top <laughs> of the hill. Have you my have just said yes. And, you know, <laughs> no, if yeah, I had a five-bedroom uh, condo there. <laughs> you grew up in Colorado. You generally don't ski in Aspen. Well, you know, there's a saying for people from Colorado. That's right. So, no, 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 I don't. So please so don't. Like you either have two houses or two jobs. And uh, <laughs> wasn't was not from the two house side. Yeah, right? same. <laughs> okay, so you, you uh, grew up there in the Northwest. So did you get a chance to do a lot of skiing? Is that one of the passions that you have? Yeah, you know, it became more of a passion as, as I got older and stuff. So you start okay. to appreciate things, right? It's uh, it's like a lot of things. You don't really appreciate kind of what's around you a lot of times till you till you get out, you know? And I think that's uh, even the military, right? Like yeah. your show. Sometimes you're sitting there in CIF with the old lady inspecting your canteen cup and you hate it. But then you look back on it and you're like, man, I would remember just joking around with those guys and laughing the hardest you've ever laughed sometimes. So, you know, it's, it's the same with Colorado. Sometimes I really appreciate it, but definitely, you know, it's my favorite place to be. Because of that reason, I still have my canteen cup. So I yeah. went and bought a new one. That way I would pass CIF. But you're right. It's a Who turns in their canteen cup? I don't know. Somebody does. I've seen <laughs> guys with Brillo pads, you know, trying to get all the stains and everything out of there. It's like, dude, just go buy one of those things. So Yeah, I think I uh, CIF helps keep half the military industrial complex running by <laughs> purchases to replace things people just don't want to Totally. People, there are stories, definitely. And and I think maybe if you get a good guy that's like, you know, he's having a, a good day or whatever, he doesn't care, you throw that sleeping bag or whatever in there that you never use, but most guys would look at it and go, this is dirty, you yeah. know? It's like, I didn't, I never even used the thing. You guys gave it to me, you know? I slept on the ground and never used the, yeah. Yeah, we had a story in Ranger Battalion about a sergeant major who went to clear he went down to CIF. He came back and signed reenlistment papers or something like that. <laughs> yeah. He's like, you know what? I just would rather stay in. <laughs> That's bad. Yeah. And then I went through CIF and I was like, I get it. Yeah, maybe, put a little recruitment, you know, reenlistment yeah. office. Maybe down that's there. the whole connection, right? <laughs> well, well not a bad idea. since you feel that way, right? Here's our street. recruiting. Yeah. Sign this paper or go in there. We're going to make it so hard to get out. So, you know, it's funny you mentioned that about the uh, the snow because I was the exact same way living around the beach. I grew up in Florida, and I'll be at the beach here in a couple of weeks, and my family absolutely love, you know, they love going to the beach, but they know I'm not a huge fan of it, M mainly because um, the whole ordeal, I think, that goes into it. 
today when people go to the beach, at least my family, I, I can't speak for everybody, but I do see the same ants moving back and forth. And so it's like seven o'clock in the morning, people get up, they go out there, they stake their little spot, you know, stick their umbrella in the sand and put their cooler down the whole bit. They come back, they eat their breakfast, and they now they've got their land stake. They go out there and they spend till the sun goes down in blazing heat, high humidity, with little wind to enjoy the sun. And I burn. I mean, yeah. I freckle, but sun doesn't agree with me. And uh, anyway, that's my story. Yeah, you know, the the locals, I live down there, seventh group, special force group who I was part of, uh, they moved down from Bragg down to the beach, which was right down the not road a from where horrible I grew up. recruiting tool, by yeah, the way. Yeah, no, right? not at all. Um, it, was, it was incredible the number of people, didn't matter, the SF guys or support enablers and stuff like that, just... Hey, I'd like to go to seventh group. Like, Is that yeah. where you were in seventh? Yeah. That's so I was in, I'm special. from Milton. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you know the deal. So yeah. I, my house is in Devar. So, oh, um, yeah. you know, the, the locals would go to the beach in the morning. Like you show up at nine and then you're kind of off at 11, you know, unless there was some function going on because it's, you know, too hot. But then you'd see the line of people heading out at noon, you know, into <laughs> 98 degrees. I know. <laughs> Fighting the crowds and stuff. So you knew exactly. That's why you looked at me, kind of give me a wink. You knew exactly what I was talking about. But I love the water, unlike you, apparently. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, no, I, I love the water, and I scuba dive and everything. But or I used to. I don't do as much anymore. But I just don't like laying out in the sun and baking. It's yeah. just not my idea of a good time. What's interesting is where I lived was just down the road from where uh, Ranger School does the water training. The little yeah. space, and it was always kind of weird because you drive by something you later in life, right? You go back to it, and yeah. it's completely different than you remember it. And so I just kind of remember this very isolated little place, and it's probably because I was asleep on the truck or bus <laughs> going out there yep. and stuff. And you get out there, and it's kind of surrounded by trees, but there's literally houses and neighborhoods on both sides of it, right? And, and he, <laughs> so yeah. it's kind of like no, it feels like you're in the middle of the river. Yeah, the like you're in the middle of nowhere. nowhere. And then, it, then I remember I stopped one of the IRIs one day, and I'm like, hey, man, is did, it, did this move here? And he's like, no, it's been here like whatever, 15 years or whatever. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, What made you go into the military? Out of Colorado. Well, at the time, you know, I'd actually, my, my dad's uh, job had taken him to uh, Dodge City, Kansas, of Dodge all places. Dodge City, so, right? Kansas. So ending up in... Very cool. Well, historical-wise, right? Is it still tumbleweeds? Take a pause here for a second. You know, apologize to anybody living in Dodge City, Kansas right now. Um, you know, Dodge City is in the middle of nowhere, right? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the historical part to it is, is kind of neat. But it's a tiny little town. I don't know what the population was when I got moved there you know i was taken there it's uh my <laughs> confinement period or whatever you want to call it um were you a bad kid or something Tommy? <laughs> <laughs> kind of felt like it but uh met, met some gr good friends there so you know shout out to them but i mean it's just in the middle of nowhere and there's nothing to do you go from like mountains and being around that to flat. surrounded by flat and nothing you know we used to drive like two and a half hours to wichita just to go to a mall Oh, right. and Wichita was the Which, big city. Yeah, it was like a huge city, and you you oh drive for two and a half hours. You when you think each way, right? Yeah. And uh, just to go to a mall. So, um, so like when people say, "Hey, get the hell out of Dodge," it's like, no, literally, I get the hell out of Dodge. <laughs> 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 so, Love it. So yeah, it's just like uh, you know, I wanted a different trajectory and stuff. So the military offered that. I was always interested in the military and going in the military, but you know that exacerbated it. it's like all right you got to find something else to do because you don't want to get stuck 
here or some dead end path. So the military, you know, offered that the ability to get the hell out of Dodge and get some college money and stuff. But I, you know, the, the whole college thing was nice, but it's not what grabbed me. I was probably the single easiest army recruit in the history of the United States army. I mean, they had this TV plan and, and it was like back when those, Discs. You remember those oh, big laser oh, the, video It discs? was called Join System. And no. I, it's funny, I even remember that that you said it. Uh, but it was, and I don't remember what the, somebody's going to call me up or DM me or whatever, remind me of it. But yes, I do. It was actually a case for those who didn't look like basically uh, somewhere where you store a body. Uh, it was about six feet long and about two feet high. And you could lock it and everything. And then you'd open it up and it'd form a table. And you'd have like a TV and a keyboard set and a printer all in there. And I'd put these big laser discs. This is yep. well before your time, Paul. So remember the wow. little CDs? You know, those things that maybe even some people listening yeah, don't remember. CDs. Imagine yeah. one the size, the size of a vinyl record. Yeah. And um, that's what we put on. And we'd play a video. Yeah. And we'd give them a pre-ASVAB test on that thing. Yeah, no, I mean, it was one of those big laser disc things, and it was playing like a video of some guys jumping out of an airplane, you know, some airborne stuff. It was already it, on when you walked in there. Yeah, it was like, it was, Man, I, I don't know if it was tactic. a system you were you were talking about, but it was the big laser disc thing, mm-hmm, right? And because mm-hmm. guys like, this is the technology the Army has. And then there was this one of these guys kind of coming out of the swamp, you know, oh, got their the hat PC, on. and they yeah. got the, the drive things. He's like, those are Rangers and stuff. I'm like, I want some of that, right? So... Um, I mean, it was a 42-second conversation probably. So the guy's like, do you want to hear about any of the benefits? I'm like, I'm good, you know. And, uh, it, you know. Went down to the maps, got option 40? Well, you know, I was 17, so I had to, you know, my Print parents had to come down yeah. and, and do all that stuff, which is no problem. My parents were like, absolutely. <laughs> we <laughs> we want to heck out of Hodge as well. You know, man. so uh, did that, yeah, and, and uh, wanted the, the Ranger option. So interestingly enough, like the first time I went down to the map station, there were like no Ranger contracts. Um, so, you know, you get the hard pressure to like just pick something, right? It's like... Yeah. Hey, whatever the the cook MOS is like, chef of the army. You know, you can go do this. <laughs> True, they do. I mean, they were the guys are pushing. You know, <laughs> so I'm just like, and I, I had a pretty decent recruiter. So shout out to him. He's like, man, if this is what you want, no matter what they tell you, yeah, do this right because he had his quota for for you know my kind of back then we had to make right. right. You had yep. to make. What you're talking about is they, it's not the same as it is today, but I mean, back in the day, you had to have so many, maybe it's a male high school graduate that scored above the national average, you know, a male um, high school graduate that doesn't score above the national average that can be replaced by a higher category, by the way, a female high school senior, you know, and a prior service. And you can use some substitutions that they would allow within that, but you didn't reach mission box, which is a general ONO thing at that time frame, but you didn't reach mission box and you weren't successful unless you either met that category or went above it. In some cases, if you went above that category, then you still didn't meet it in some people's eyes because, 
you know, you should, that should have been an extra body. You still should have found the one that you were you yeah. were supposed to go. So it would get so bad. Like a used car salesman at the end of the month is trying to make his quota. It would get so bad. I would stand in front of six foot eight guys who were who were bawling because I'm chewing their butt out in the hallway, telling them get back in there and take whatever the hell he offers you, you know, <laughs> or I'm going to leave your butt down here in Houston, Texas. That type of thing. That's where I was at. It was Houston, and he had an hour and a half drive back home. Yeah. Long walk. You know, that's yeah, a long walk. You're yeah. a good man, Rob. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, fortunately, you know, he'd met his quota, so I wasn't kind of the hard sell for him and stuff, but I was definitely the hard sell. Did you sell. go to the chef route then? <laughs> yeah, I did not. One, you wouldn't want to eat anything I cooked first and foremost. Uh, <laughs> but no, I, uh, I, you know, he told me, he was like, hey, if you want this, stay the course. And they were giving me a hard sell. And I'm like, hey, I want to call my recruiter. And they're like, well, you can't, you know, play the whole like, you know, it's a long distance phone call. Uh, <laughs> it's like see? free cell phone days. We all did it. It's yeah. crazy, right? So I uh, finally got a hold of him. Unfortunately, he gave me his home number, and he's like, "Just tell him you're not signing on the plane. We'll send you back, right?" And uh, so I'd had to fly from Dodge City, Kansas, to well, one, I had to get driven to Wichita, two and a half hours, and then get on a plane to fly to Kansas City, where the MEP station oh, wow. was. So. There's some unhappy people, and I was like literally the last person to walk out of that MEP station. They were not happy. They're like locking the door, you know, wow. <laughs> sending me home and stuff like that. But I, so I came back and eventually went back, you know, and uh, and got that Ranger contract and stuff like that. So for RIP, you know, to yep. be able to go to RIP and stuff. Um, so back then, I don't know that it was called necessarily option 40, probably because you're talking 80s. Yeah, yeah, it was 86 when all that was happening yeah. and left in early. But it was a so. ranger contract. We still right, called it yeah. that. I don't remember what it was called back then. But at any rate, um, you, you get the contract, you go, You what, 12 months later into your program or just enough to finish high school? Yeah, at that time it was just enough to finish high school. Um, so pretty quick. And, you know, I graduated high school and I have 17. Yeah, so, me too. Yeah. It was funny. Uh, went went to high school graduation there in Dodge City. You know, did that. All Twenty of you, along with the elementary <laughs> yeah. class. My class is literally like forty or something like that. You know, these yeah. people have these like four hundred person high school classes. Yeah. I'm like, is that your entire school system? <laughs> like, that's my graduating <laughs> class. You know, and there were smaller schools than ours, right? Everything was surrounding that area, but uh, but yeah, you know, I went graduated, drove home. Um, had a beer with my dad and literally the recruiter pulled up in front of the house about an hour and a half after we got home and drove me to Wichita, Kansas to get on a plane to fly to the MEP station to do the processing and then flew here, you know, here to Atlanta, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that was the first airline I'd ever been on, right? Other than yeah. these little pond jumpers flying back from, um, Back then, those were props, too. Props, yeah, yeah, yeah. flying back and jumpers. forth and stuff. And uh, But, you know, so I'm on my first airplane, real airplane yeah. ride, you know. Airline here to Atlanta, Georgia, showed up at, like, some red eye at, like, 2 a.m. There's some Army guy, right? I think they planned that. Yeah, it's, it's weird because I always, I, you know, I fly in and out of Atlanta all the time now. And yeah. So I'm always looking for the army guys. I'm like, where are they? Just I always yeah. remember, even when I go on leave, they're like the army guys directing folks to Fort Benning. So I guess maybe it's all app based now. I have no idea. Let's go to the top of the stairs, <laughs> go to the bus. No. That's a good point. I never see them there. You know, you're but right. You they're not there, but they used to be right there. Like you know, they had a little sign and pointing in the direction. You know, knuckleheads mm-hmm. like me, like get on the bus. And I just remember that first day was horrible. Right, I took this red eye flight. You know, yeah. completely nervous. You're not sleeping. It's 2 a.m. You're on this bus ride. You're nervous. You're not yep. sleeping. And then you show up at the, that kind of pre, whatever that pre-in processing mm-hmm. station thing is. And, uh, 
you know, and then you're kind of going through that and it's like that whole, that whole initial process is just blank for me. I remember yeah. snippets, you know, whatever, for whatever reason, I had like one thing that stands out during that whole time frame is like getting shots and get my dog tags and the rest yeah. of it, like whatever happened in that building is like a blur. And then one day they, you know, put us on those cattle trucks and yep. took us over to cattle trucks and those things where we were doing basic training yeah, and the drill sergeants descended you know so it's a interesting time back then so at that time frame uh there wasn't uh, an issue of 11 mics and everything so you went straight up 11 bravo and no they had the 11 mics and it was actually if i remember right it was fairly new it was mm -hmm. like a brand new thing because it was like you know 11 bravo is kind of the mac but i do remember this the 11 mic program was pretty new i think that summer was when they were first starting it yeah um so you know they did it. nobody in my class went 11 mics it was all uh, that's when they were doing the cohort stuff mm -hmm. so half of our folks were like a cohort we weren't and the rest of our battalion are all these cohorts of, yeah of cohorts where do you remember those paul cohorts where the whole battalion i mean the whole um unit that you may have gone to osit with basic training ait and stuff i think even the drill sergeants all of you just moved out sort of like the movie stripes you all just take out and and you stick together as one big cohort. Oh. Well, we did the cohort through like AIT and stuff like that. Okay. But they had these, like one cohort was like Alaska or Hawaii or something like that. You know, it was all the recruits from that area. It, it was kind of weird, but. It's interesting. Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, they weren't doing It was that. weird, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, it was Fort Benning in May. You know, I graduated high school in early May. So it was like yeah. horrible. Seemed like it was hotter than it is now, but yeah. so you must have graduated September, August, September. Yeah, I graduated early May. We just kind of were. No, I mean, uh, uh, OSIT. Uh, I don't. Yeah, something like that, and then went to airborne school. Yeah, um, it's all a blur. It's all a blur. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. I hate to say it. Maybe yeah. I'm getting old, soft. Who knows? But after Rip, how did it uh, go? How did, where'd you end up? Well, you know, I went to Third Range Battalion there, yeah. just down the road here at Fort Benning. You know, that it's uh a great place you know i always say it took three to get it right so i was also in first range <laughs> yeah, battalion when i when i became an officer but uh i always kind of the banter between all all the range battalions and stuff all, all of them are great but you know went to airborne school um what's funny is like you start off basic training there's all the people like yeah i'm going ranger you know i'm going ranger contract and then immediately like people start like you know, first contact, and it's like, nope, don't want any of this, and it just keeps getting smaller and smaller yep. and smaller and smaller. Airborne school, people are like, I'm tired of being in school, or whatever it is, you know, and then I remember um, RIP was fairly small, like the Ranger Assessment Selection Program now is, you know, light years advanced to what I went through, you know, when I went through, it was more of a suck fest, you know, and yeah. now they actually try to train you and prepare you yeah. for what you We talked about doing, that, right? yeah. So just, again, phenomenal developments in that space. But, you know, um, this pickup truck shows up, and it's like, hey, everybody going to rip, go over to this pickup truck. And it was literally one of those old shitty camouflage pickup trucks, whatever yep. they called those. You remember those? Now we got all these, you know, civilian purchased whatever TMP vehicles. Yeah. But back then they had that 
I think they called them M880s or whatever, but it was literally a pickup oh. truck that was camouflaged. Right? It wasn't just a big old Chevy. Yeah, it was yeah, like a big yeah, old yeah, Chevy. yeah. I do remember it that. It had like this burgundy tone. interior. So they literally put you in the bed of the truck. No. Like, oh, no, hell no. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, they, got, they let you put your bags in our there. Bags, so you could walk. Yeah. One of the bags went in there. One of the bags went <laughs> on our back. And then, uh, then, we, then we ran from the airborne school down there. So by the time we got down there, you know, another group, you know, fell out. I think my class was like 60. And then by the time RIP was done, it was like 12, 12 or 13 folks um, there. And then by the time, like I was one of two people that went to third battalion, which is not a great experience for a ranger <laughs> battalion, right? It's like bus yeah. doors open, two dudes get off and there's like a million people. It's just like, you might as well throw like two people with like bleeding legs into a shark pit, right? And it's like, there's a million like E3s and spec fours just waiting on you to, to get there. <laughs> yep. And the uh, new meat. Yeah, it was new meat. And it was funny. <laughs> the guy that was there with me like two days later, he's like, I'm out of here because it was like a smoke fest and I was just too scared to, to quit. So I ended up staying. Um, but that's when third battalion was out there where kind of that area where Ranger School is now. Yeah. No. Oh, I, really? Okay. Oh, was yeah. it over there? Yeah. The old um, uh, Harmony Church area. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that they were at Harmony Church. Yeah, Third Ranger Town actually started on um, uh, up on Sand Hill, and then pretty quickly moved out there to Harmony Church. So when they initially formed the cadre there at Sand Hill, in one of the kind of the basic training barracks. Same thing with Tenth Mountain Division guys are out there. They're up there in one of those Sand Hill. Harmony areas. Church has been used a lot then because uh, some guys went to basic training. I think at Harmony Church, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Basic training was out there at Harmony Church. When, yeah, when I went through. Yeah, their Sand Hill okay. was like it was like, hey, where are you going? Harmony Church, which some people are like, I'm sorry, and then Sand Hill, which was like, you know, the Hilton back then because they were brand new buildings. Now they're yeah. people look at them. They're what do they call them? The Starships. Starships. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, so uh, went out there, and, and that, I mean, the area was completely isolated except for a couple of basic training battalions, but they were pretty quickly shutting all that stuff down and moving it to uh, all to Sand Hill and stuff. So we were just out there isolated. We were closer to Cassetta or Cassita or whatever yeah, it was yeah, down yeah. there. Um, and it's funny because back then, you know, privates didn't have cars. Like, getting credit wasn't a thing. Credit cards weren't a thing, you know? So you're just isolated. So... They had buses ran around, but from Harmony Church, it was like a two-hour bus ride just to get to main post, you know. And, yeah, uh, going 15 miles an hour. Yeah, so as soon as you made a friend, it was whoever had a car, you got a person with a car that was like your best friend, right? Like you'd shove 10 Rangers in this car, no seat belts, two in the trunk, <laughs> you know, to, to get to wherever you're going type thing. So, uh, yeah, it was good out there. It was kind of the old school Ranger Battalion, you know, which is um, starches and spits and you know, smoking privates all day long. Was your scroll not like the new one? Did you have the old scroll then when you no, first got no. there? No, When the regiment started and they created 3rd Battalion, because regiment 3rd Battalion started at the same time, so mm -hmm. that's when they regimentalized everything. Um, that's that's when they went to the... Uh, new scroll. Yeah. Technically the old scroll, if you want to be very historical about it, right? <laughs> Those are the World War II scrolls. Yeah, they weren't the old, uh, old scrolls, as the new guys call them. No, it wasn't the, uh, the yeah. old scrolls. But it was a different, you know, it was a different army back then. Like, yeah all our first sergeants and battalion commanders and sergeant majors, they're all Vietnam yeah, veterans, right? Yeah. You know, so it was kind of that. And they're all the folks who helped form the Ranger battalions. They're all first and 
second ranger battalion you know all the platoon sergeants that all come from first and second battalion because when i got there you know the battalion was only a couple of years old i mean like the folks my squad leaders and some of the team leaders were the original yeah. you know folks who were there and stuff so that's a cool bit of history though <laughs> yeah cool. and then then i was there you know um i can't remember what year it was it was maybe 89 we moved on to main post um what was the PT field, Lee field or something like that. Pedenfield. Pedenfield. We yeah. moved out and uh, it was the old school of America's barracks. They moved them somewhere else and we moved into these barracks, which are absolutely in horrendous condition and stuff. Yep. And we basically stopped training for like two weeks and night and day. And oh, by the way, we moved ourselves. So none of this like civilian contractor. <laughs> it's like, who's got a pickup truck? Who's got, you know, every oh, military really? truck? Yeah, moving furniture moving so the compound that i saw in 1990 when i got there was those old world war ii barracks were the school of the americas that you guys moved into uh no the school of americas when we moved on to the main post area yeah right uh, and then and those were i don't think they're world war ii but they're like 1950s era okay yeah. you know they're like korean some, something around that time yeah. frame and then uh so third battalion's technically on its like fourth location, you know, in that new new facility they're at. Yeah, right that, now. That, that's stuff, nice. So. There's a lot of well, there are nice. I think there's still a little bit of old still sitting there, but they're they put a well, they have to have somewhere to put the mortar platoon. <laughs> so they they kept they kept one of them around. I think they put a facade around one the outside the old, old buildings. Yeah, oh that's because that's I was in the same barracks, the old yeah. Hammerhead building, and they moved. Well, they moved us out of the nice new barracks. Like, yeah, your headquarters company. You'll be all right. We'll put you in your own space. And we get in there. We're, it was a shock to the system a little bit. We're like, this is especially terrible. They wrapped them, I think, now in like with stucco or something and made them try to dress them up, like putting lipstick on a pig. Yeah. But. I haven't been down. What's crazy is I've been in the Atlanta area for five years, and uh, I need to go down. And you need to go take a trip down memory lane. It's well, changed so much. I went there. I went to see a friend of mine a couple of years ago, but we didn't drive around the base as yeah. much as I should. I went to the old rib compound mm. you know which has been leveled and stuff uh, it's nice to see they left the road with the old you got to kelly strangers. hill uh i don't think i've driven out to to kelly hill the uh, buck 97 yeah they or, that is like all shut down you're not supposed to really walk around the buildings or anything because there's nobody there it's like tumbleweeds going across and at kelly hill yeah there's wow, it's all trade dock there's no force com oh, wow. so it's just 75th and trade dock yeah, but they moved the armor stuff out there too, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they created new motor poles, I think, for them and stuff like Is that. Is the, the engineer battalion still out there, right? Uh, maybe there is somebody still out there. Well, I drove around when I was, you know, get, given the tour, Don was taking me down there. He's like, oh, yeah, let me show you. You know, we went on down through there, and I'm like, oh, my God, this place is like dead. I didn't see any movement whatsoever. So maybe they are there. They were just not there that day yeah. well the infusion of cash from the global war on terror and it really kind of got a few folks out of like 1940s buildings yeah. and 1950s buildings and stuff so there's pretty some pretty phenomenal facilities you out need there. to go down there we were just talking to um chris dutch moyer uh on a uh, or dutch chris moyer i'm gonna get it right dutch chris moyer <clears throat> on a uh, another episode and he was kind of complaining about how it's now the maneuver center of excellence and so when you're driving in since you haven't seen it or if you didn't go in the main gate there off of 185 coming in you know now they've got the overpass that was there that went out to where you're talking about and uh 430b and you know the all that kind of stuff and they they've now decorated that with a statue on each side one of them's a calf a horse you know a guy on a calf horse and 
it looks like he said it. What do you call it? A Roman something? Yeah. Uh, like a yeah, Roman, Roman entrance. And, yeah, I've been through there. I just haven't driven around Pose very much. Like before I retired, I went there a couple a couple of years ago to Maneuver Center, but specifically went there to talk to some of the leadership and stuff. But I didn't drive around the base. Like I didn't go out right. to Harmony Church or Sand Hill or any of that stuff and uh, check it out. And uh, I'd love to go see that new museum. I heard it's pretty awesome down there. Yeah, I, you know, and, and stuff I, like that. I got to say, I live here and I don't go down. I need to go to the museum. I've heard You've amazing. No, it's amazing. Oh, haven't been. Yeah. I need to go down there. Well, you know, when I wanted to go down there and do it, it was a COVID time period and stuff. So I need to just go ahead and take some time and go down yeah. there and experience it. I've heard it's really, I went inside building four, which was a shock, you know, because yeah, it's very different. different. <laughs> yeah. Really it's different. like the Pentagon now. I know, right? She said, whoa. Yep. But yeah, very, very different. The whole place out there. I mean, the Ranger Monument, um, very, very nice. You know, that's that's really cool. They have sitting up front of building four. Well, it's yeah. I mean, the, the good thing is just like all the training stuff out there, like what the Rangers have out there trained. It's like incredible, you know, just compared to what we had. So yeah. So what was it like when you guys would go to like if you were just going to go to a rifle range? Yeah, I mean, we used the same ranges that everybody else yeah. used, right? We didn't have any of our own training facilities, yeah. so you had the old. I think it's McKenna Mount, right? Yep. Um, wow, stuff's flashing back. It's crazy. <laughs> The McKenna Mount site, and you just went out there to Malone Complex, right, yeah. where the basic train. You just used all that stuff. There wasn't okay. any kind of specialized. But, you know, the Ranger Regiment was different back then, really. Um, you know, this kind of term special operations didn't exist yeah. in, in the same way it is now, you know, and term operator and all that stuff. It was just very different. If anything, I would say back in the 80s, people kind of were more, hey, we're commandos, you know, there's that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. I, we just didn't. It was different, right? We were just like elite infantry. And kind of going back to the old Abrams Charter, how the Ranger Regiment was created, which was really to fix the rest of the Army, which in my opinion, the Ranger Regiment did. I know I'll probably get a lot of hate and discontent from a lot of other people, but if you you look at what the Charter, what Abrams Charter was, was, and, and it's in there, what he wrote down for why I wanted to create the Ranger Battalion was take the best NCOs, and officers and put them together in these infantry units and really become a model for what a disciplined good unit would be, right? And then send them back out to the Army. And, like, you'll hear Ranger Regiment talk a lot about the Ranger Charter, and I know during the global war on terrorism, at least on the backside, when because yeah. guys stayed in regiment for a little while, and then they're like, hey, we're going to get back to the Charter where you got to go back, right? Like, if you want to be a platoon leader, you had to have been a platoon leader somewhere else or company commander for start and all that stuff. And it's part of the Charter, right? You can get up to potentially be, I can't remember if it was platoon sergeant. You could stay there through platoon sergeant. You may know better than I, Paul, but you know, it was to go out and go out there and be an example of the rest of the army. And when you saw these NCOs, you know, go out there and, and uh, go to like the 82nd, you know, it, it really was different. It was impactful and stuff. And uh, given a company commander, right? Cause officers, unfortunately, right. You know, you start off as a Lieutenant where basically you're a, three-year older private, yep. <laughs> empowered private, right? Yep. When you get down to it, you know, you're, what, 22 years old compared to the 18-year-old private. You're, you're kind of almost the same level, maybe a little bit more experiential, maturity level, um, level, but but you're still a private, right? So being able to go and be in the 82nd as a platoon leader and then go back to the Ranger Regiment where you're surrounded by these incredible NCOs who really train officers, right, at that level. Company commanders train, but really the NCOs train Mm-hmm. lieutenants yeah plain and simple 
98% of your training comes from the NCOs around you. So taking those lieutenants and putting them in that environment, it was, it was more to me of them leading these platoons, and it still is, and it was more of them training these officers to be able to become better officers for the Army and military. So Abrams Charter really changed it, right, and what they were doing. And, and if you look at, just look at the leaders in the Army from the 80s on. They all had Ranger Regiment background. Mm-hmm. I mean, look look at yeah. look at our military right now. You know, these senior officers, they, they have a regimental background, regardless yeah. of whether it was 20 years prior, right, and they didn't stay within the special operations community. There were two units, I would say, that, and that was, uh, if you notice, a lot of the guys who picked up general actually served as well at some point, either as a squadron or regimental commander at 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment. Yeah. That yeah. was another one. Yeah, it's interesting, those key units that really yeah. are just kind of feeder units for, for senior officers and, and NCOs and stuff. But, but kind of getting back to it, you know, the Ranger Charter was really, that's what it was really getting after was kind of being an example for the Army. So when I was in Ranger Regiment early, it was really all about being kind of this exceptional infantry unit that could be called upon, you know, to be the point of the spear for those type operations. There was some special operations stuff like the airfield seizures yeah. and, you know, sometimes you would partner with the special missions units for certain missions and stuff like that. It certainly wasn't on the level that it kind of became in the 90s and 2000s. But, uh, but you know, it was still pretty interesting doing yeah. doing some of the missions. You know, we had the Jeeps and bikes for the airfield seizure. We did that. And it was just, it was more about kind of being the best. You're an infantryman, but you're a best infantryman, right? Yeah. And, and it's like um, a lot of people ask me, it's like, well, I got this PT stud in the 82nd, right? What was the difference between the platoon I had in the 82nd, the platoon I had in the Rangers? And it's like, okay, I could pick out, you know, out of these 48 guys, I could pick out 10 who are exceptional performers, but you got the other 30 who are kind of average, whereas in the Ranger Regiment, that would be flipped on its head compared to using the same numbers. It would be 30 exceptional guys and 10 average, you know, it, it, not average, average, but you know what I mean? It's yeah. like it was a ratio yeah. that was different, and that's what the dynamic was. And then just kind of the... Uh, Anywhere you go, you, Paul, you probably have a, a Ranger Regiment tattoo on somewhere or something in your coin, right? <laughs> so, and that's that's yep. my point, right? It, yeah. It's the, the the pride being a part of that organization is. I mean, that's why there's, you know, there is not a special forces like merchandise store, but there's like two, you know, Scroll Factory being one. Yeah. Shout out, you know, yeah, Ranger um, Joe's, you know, all those kind of that, like these are guys that do nothing but make. Ranger Regiment merchandise for for folks who were in the Ranger Regiment back in the early 70s till now, and it's because there's such intense pride around around that organization, right? They teach you your history, right? It's like, hey, Merrill's Marauders, here's the teams, you know, red, white, and blue, orange, green, khaki. You know, you can yeah. talk to any Ranger, and they'll be able to recite that because it's part of here's your lineage, and, you know, here's what it means, and that lineage went all the way from, you know, back in the Civil actually yeah. all the way to the Revolutionary War, and it's been added onto with all the, all the phenomenal stuff the organization has done up until that time. So it's a great place to, to go and learn to be a soldier. It's the best place. Like, you know, we have the 18 X-ray program in the special force yeah. community where I went afterwards. But, you know, I always encourage when people ask me like, hey, my son's got the opportunity to go be an 18 X-ray or, or go into the Ranger Regiment. It's like, go learn to be a soldier in the Ranger Regiment. Yeah, yeah. Then, myself, right? right. And, have served with tons of phenomenal 18 x-rays, but you can walk in a formation and generally tell the difference between an 18 x-ray and a, somebody who kind of came from a formation, particularly if they came up through the Ranger Regiments. And it's just the experience. It's not them personally. It's just kind of their ability to kind of yeah. learn and mature and become a 
ground, you know, form the groundwork for being a soldier before they go go to SF. So. Well, we were we were talking earlier, just kind of on that subject about, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this about um, <clears throat> back in the day when we came in. You know, they, you had to serve at least two years in the army, <clears throat> be at least an E4 before you could go off the special forces assessment and a Q course and everything. And um, nowadays, you can come right off the streets, 18 X-ray, like you're talking about, but yet. If you're guided and mentored in the right way, it's like you're saying, no, go go cut your teeth, go through Ranger Regiment and stuff, and then, you know, pick a, go to a battalion and stuff, and then go to SFA, S&Q. So I think there's a lot to be gained like you're talking about. And I'm curious to know, do you think it should revert back to where you do have to have before you can go to SF? I know the reason why 18 X-Ray came about, uh, numbers primarily, but do you think there's there's something to be gained, like what we're talking about, where you go in and spend for, even if it's conventional, you spend a period of time. Yeah, you know, my personal opinion is yes, but there are some challenges to that, right? Uh, just being frank about it. So, you know, if I just stand back and Tommy Stoner's pinch, yes, but then there's this, uh, the people trying to, you know, get, get people in the formation. That's why the 18 X-ray program came about yeah. was, you know, the growth. Like when I went to, you the know. Surge, yeah. Well, it wasn't even the search, yeah, honestly. It was, it was even before. So, like, when I went to SF and I went to 7th Special Forces Group, there were six teams assigned to a company. And all of 7th Special Forces Group outside our Charlie company, which was our commanders and extremist force, um, and they kind of did some specialized missions, there wasn't a single sixth team in the battalion uh, because we didn't, just have, we didn't have enough people. And when I showed up on my team, there were nine of us. And two were heading out the door, right? Like when we went to Afghanistan, we went with nine people, right? That was my team. And uh, and that's just the way it was. So it's like we don't have enough teams, we don't have enough people. So they revisited the X-ray program. So in all fairness, actually, when SF started, you didn't have to have served. Like if you go back way to the early history, um, you didn't have to have been in for a certain number of years. In fact, they were looking for people like, hey, you're Czech. Come in the army, you know, we'll yeah. get you to become a soldier, and then we'll put you in SF because the whole intent was kind of get behind the Iron Curtain. And then it kind of closed down, and they came and said, hey, let's build some time around it. And then Vietnam came, and it was open again, and it shut down. And then they did another thing called X-ray at the time, and they opened it again in, I think, the late 70s, early 80s, and it shut down. You had to have so much time, and then the X-ray. So it's kind of been this on-again, off-again yeah. for, mm -hmm. for doing that. So on one hand, I can see it, and, it, and I've met some incredibly talented 18 X-rays. Don't get me wrong. It's uh, it's just I think the one thing they're missing there is um, kind of just that experience mm -hmm. there, and, and it would be great if, you know, go do two years in the Range Regiment or something like that yeah. and, and go to SF. You know, the other thing that people hate me for is, like, the special small units tactics phase of Q Corps should be Ranger School. Just get oh. rid of that and go to ranger school. Again, I'm probably going to get some hate content <laughs> at the ends on your thing, but but you know, I'll point them your direction. Yeah, you know, and because ranger school is less about tactics yeah. and it's more about kind of discovering yourself and a little bit about the leadership. I at least it was. I'm sure mm -hmm. fundamentally it's still the same and stuff, but that's what it was about. So there's a lot of things that you could do to to jumpstart it. Um, I, the one thing I will tell you about the 18 X-rays, though, is that the talent that was coming in through that pipeline was incredible. Yeah. Right? Because um, the raw talent that, that was coming in generally was pretty, pretty phenomenal. 
and in a lot of cases better than what existed um, out there. They're again, they're just missing the experience. I've heard think now it's a phenomenal program now for sure. But well, I it's, didn't know it's in the beginning. It's yeah. good training. Well, in the beginning, like anything, you know, yeah, you're yeah. trying to figure out the program and all that stuff, and and they put some additional requirements. Like they looked at the data and said, hey, who's who's coming through this successfully and who's doing well on the teams and stuff like that. So I think they got a lot of good feedback from the NCO side of the house in particular. Um, so they're all talents there, you know, it's, it's folks with college degrees or they've been out having these, these life experiences and they're like, Hey, I want to go do something different, right? I want to go serve my, my nation, particularly in a time of war. So the talent that was coming through, I think was, and is incredible. It's just, they're kind of missing this, the small experiential piece that they could close it pretty easily. So, you know, not, not going to poo poo on that whole, whole program there. I think, uh, it's just, and I would get it, honestly, as a commander, when I'd put teams out there, they'd be like, well, this 18 x-ray program, what makes this guy who just got rapidly got his E6 different from this E4 in the formation, right? So, you know, you could talk to him a little bit about, well, let's kind of talk about the motivation. Because I think the requirement was you had to be 20 to even come in the 18 x-ray yeah. program at one point, something like that. So. Um, you, you could talk to it, but but there was a little bit of credibility, even if they were competent folks. And 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 truth be told, you know, you're some some of these guys first time of being a leader and, and leading troops. Um, some of them were when they became a team sergeant, so they'd kind of picked up some of that. But it is kind of nice to be able to get that out of the way a little bit earlier and stuff. But again, you know, some some phenomenal folks out there and talent that was coming through that because. You know, going well, out I think it's attractive to, cert, to to talent. Like there's yeah. a certain kind of person that likes the 18 X-ray program. It's a longer pipeline, but your reward is greater. You know, it's there's more versatility and diversity in what you're going to ex- encounter and learn. So I think it's it is yeah. good. And I'll tell you the one thing about being on a team. Like the 18 X-ray didn't exist early on when I was there on the team. Is um, and I saw it on my team when we went to Afghanistan the first time before we had all these big support bases, right? So you got a you got a Humvee mechanic, you got a generator mechanic, you got like a commo dude. And these usually weren't like the commo guy wasn't the eighteen echo and you know, yeah. my one of my eighteen deltas, my senior eighteen delta was an eight it was a mortarman, eleven Charlie, right? So you just had this incredible other background there and then it's like okay you know we're seventh group we didn't have vehicles and stuff and we show up yeah. and we got all these gmvs that third group had left us right and so having some folks like walk my team through like here's where you know the engine and here's the stuff you need to do it's <laughs> you know you just had again a lot of a lot of different background but by the same token you do get some of that through the 18 x-ray program because yeah. you get guys that come in from these Really being a mechanic or being a whatever. Well, yeah, it's just it wasn't in the military. It was sure. you know off somewhere else um, that they were doing something before they they came in. So what it, what made you decide to go the officer route? Um, really wanted it was like another opportunity to to keep doing you know at a tactical level, long game. You know, you're like yeah. oh, eventually I'm gonna end up on a staff. But you know, at a certain point as an NCO, you do kind of get into that same realm as like a, yeah. an officer. I mean, it's like yeah. hey, you're a S3 Usually it's NCO. E7 around that time frame. Or most E7, people, E8 and stuff right, like that. Try making a decision. Yeah, yeah, so it just represents, hey, I can do two more years of platoon leader and go range battalion and go do this. You know, so you're always kind of scheming. And it's like, well, then I can go SF and I can go, you know, be a mm-hmm. few more years. So I postpone this long enough that, you know, by the time you're doing staff stuff, your back hurts and your knees are <laughs> aching and stuff. So, um, but that's why I went, you know, and probably the biggest reason. Yeah. So. so when you went through that, did you go right back to a battalion uh, to 
No, Ranger actually, uh, I went through officer candidate school and uh, went to the 82nd. So I, at that time, they were allowing a, a limited number of uh, prior service officers go back to the Ranger Regiment. So I called some of the... Uh, oh, and you had to be at least a first lieutenant, too, didn't you, or something like that? No, this or? was during the... When I went through OCS, and I don't know how long it was going on before or afterwards, but there was a, a small group where they were allowing a limited number of, of lieutenants, you know, to be able to uh, apply and go back to the Ranger Regiment and stuff. And some of my OCS classmates did do that, I think two or three of them, but... I called some some mentors that I had and said, what do you think? And they're like, and it goes back to what I just talked about, about Good cutting strategy. your teeth, right? You've got to go cut your teeth. Because at that time, I really hadn't done much with the rest of the Army and stuff like that. So it's like go go out and, you know, learn to be a lieutenant, learn about the, the Army and good or bad, you know, and come back here and, and then be a part of the regiment. And they're like, and oh, by the way, your whole purpose was to come in because I explained the whole thing. Hey, I want to be a lieutenant twice and all that. And they're like, yeah. hey, if you come to Ranger Regiment, you're going to be a lieutenant for a couple of years and you're going to be an XO and then probably the S4 dude, yeah. you know. So they're like, go do that and then you can come back and you'll get your four years PL time and stuff. So I ended up uh, not going that route based on that advice and uh, um, definitely don't regret it. Went to the 82nd. Yeah. Was it at the 82nd that you decided uh, you wanted to go SF? Because you said you also did a no, different battalion. No. So I was there in, uh, so I was in the 82nd. I was in the uh, 3rd Battalion, the 504th. And uh, interestingly enough, I was supposed to go 2nd Battalion. I got changed last minute because that organization was going to the Sinai, and they were short a lieutenant. So uh, they switched me, and I went to uh, thir- 3504. So... Uh, ended up there, and the battalion commander had actually been one of the company commanders in Ranger Battalion, so he was like, hey, okay. you're, you're, you know, you're going to come over here. So that was great, and uh, got got there and then deployed right right away to the Sinai, which was, you know, peacetime army, any kind of deployment like that was pretty awesome, and the Sinai was pretty easy deployment. Um, the I came from the O4s, all that training, which was fine. A lot of the rotations over there were just kind of, hate to say it, but there are party rotations based on the reputation, right? But we actually trained, which is awesome, because it was back then, it's like, hey, here's this bunker full of ammo, you know, and it was kind of, yeah. your world was your oyster, and that this huge open desert, you just drove out there, and that, you know, there wasn't the terrorism threat like now, so sure. you just loaded your pickup trucks out, and you put a million cases of 60 ammo on, yeah. you know, the truck, and you drove out in the middle of the desert and just shot all day long, like, it was great, right? And uh, you could build these shitty little maneuver objectives and you could literally do 270 degree live fires, which was, you know, unheard of back then. So it was really good training. And again, it was pretty safe back then. So they were doing the scuba diving and you get, you know, a lot of my That's folks awesome. are getting certified right there. Cause the main camp sits right on the ocean, right there on the Red Sea. So you sea. go and get a, a civilian cert. Yeah, so you go out there. how they did it. I talked it. about that in the other episode. My <laughs> buddy did that. That's, yeah. that's what he did. He well, went scuba certified. Yeah. yeah, you rotated like half in, half yeah, out, okay. right? Like half the battalion was out and half the battalion was back at this main base. So you go out to these little almost fobs, right? Yeah. And they just certainly not as secure. If a terrorist ever wanted to overrun one of those fobs <laughs> back in the day, they easily could have, you know, yeah. with the two dudes on guard and stuff. Um, but you, you went out to these farms for a period of time. I think it was three weeks or something. Then you come back to this main base for three weeks, and then you had kind of like a, 
uh, a refit training time and then they you get trips out of it right like you get you know you get at least sunday off i don't remember how kind of the schedule but then you could do trips like i did trips to mount sinai you know where those through the tablets i went to israel a couple times tel aviv went scuba diving i mean it was pretty good you know and um different army back then too so it was like I think beers were 25 cents each on the base. It was just <laughs> yes. kind of ridiculous, you know, Yeah. then. So that wasn't a horrible, you know, deployment too. So I got that right off, you know, on the front end with the platoon and stuff and went to JRTC and uh, went to Uzbekistan, one of the first partnerships for peace, like right when the Iron Curtain closed out. So we did some of that exercise. So it was actually a really good deployment with the 82nd. Got to go do a lot of stuff, some good people and train. And, you know, the 82nd has its own downfall, you know, pitfalls and stuff like that. But uh, it was kind of neat. Like, that's like big scale airborne operations. Like, you know, you know, there's a lot of people that talk airborne operations stuff, but the 82nd does it. There's more yeah. crap falling out of the sky out of that organization, trucks and tanks. You know, <laughs> back then they still had the Sheridans that's and cool. artillery pieces. Oh, yeah, and you're just like, Holy shit! You can drop that stuff out of an airplane. <laughs> That's crazy. That's cool. Man. Yeah, it was pretty cool. You know, but it, it was a machine. Like you did a jump in the eighty second. That was an all day affair, and there was no like, three hour turnaround. It was like six a.m. Really? for like a ten, you know, twenty two hundred jump. Oh yeah, it was. It was rough. It was rough. Like yeah. airborne operations were uh, were kind of a beast there. Just in moving that many people and all that madness around and stuff like that. So, but. But it was good. I mean, it was a. I can't can't complain. I mean, it was yeah. a, it was a good trip, and you know, through through that organization again, big army experience. And then, uh, it's funny enough, the brigade commander at the time um, didn't didn't want lieutenants to go the, to back to Ranger Battalion. He thought it was uh, not a good pathway for lieutenants. So I put in my packet, and he denied it. Put another one, and he's basically dug, don't put another one in, and then. The regimental commanders changed, and literally the day of the change of command, my battalion commander took my packet in and to the new regimental commander and and said, "Hey, you know, here's the deal. What's been going on? Sign the packet." And the guy's like, "Absolutely, that's stupid." And, yeah. You know, sign the packet, and then I end up going to uh, rip rope and um, on the back end to have an E. coli, by the way. Oh, so nice. that was not a fun. Oh my god, <laughs> brutal man. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so that yeah, it was uh, that was a rough one. So, ended up in First Range Battalion there in Savannah. So it was a PL. So great, great bunch of guys again. And yeah, that's it a was good interesting. Life in Savannah too. That's a good yeah, good life. Nice. Yeah, on yeah. the water and yeah, people was like good. you. <laughs> yeah, the city does. The city yeah. does like it. It's not like uh, Columbus, Georgia no, at so the time. Yeah, now it was a it was a. Great uh, being there in Savannah, and it was interesting to see the regiment change from just the brief time that I was out. Um, and it was what was most interesting to me was kind of watching some of the old timers, if you would, gnashing their teeth on the changes that were starting to happen, which ultimately, mm. in my opinion, really set the regiment up for being very successful on the front end of the global war on terrorism. Because again, it goes back to what I talked about, where the Ranger Regiment was really kind of this elite infantry unit, right? It was just a better infantry unit used for some specialized missions, but it was it was it was hyper conventional yeah. missions, right? It wasn't special missions, it wasn't special operations other than airfield seizure. But the reality is, eighty second does airfield seizure yeah. too. 
and you can argue it's probably better dropping 7,000 people on the airfield, you're going to secure that airfield. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. not going to be precise, but you're going to secure it. You know, yeah, they, they've that. proven that, right? But but it was hyper-conventional stuff. But but the stuff like when Jerome McChrystal, you know, and, and his team came in, uh, like Mike Hall, Sergeant Major Hall were there. Yep. Um, I think those two, uh, Sergeant Major Hall and Jerome McChrystal, really like the consolidated mortar platoons. Like the gnashing of teeth when it's like, Hey, we're bringing in 81 millimeter mortars and yeah. 120 millimeter mortars, and we're going to have vehicles. People were losing their minds, right? And just simple stuff like that, just kind of really getting the organization to to think about the future and stuff like that was was interesting. Kind of be there during that time frame. You know, it's funny that you uh, you mention it in that way because don't we kind of face that? Even I mean, guys listening to this or gals, whatever. But people listening to this uh, podcast we'll be saying the same thing about oh my god i'm hearing you know tommy talk about a period of time where people are gnashing of teeth because of change going on around them and they're not being able to adjust and yet we see that every day in the army so for those of us who've been around for a long time it's like it's going to happen you know and we're going to get through it and it's probably going to happen again well you know it's like some of your podcasts right i was listening to them we talked about that and stuff and it's all like you know folks who came in and 2015 they're like well it's the new army and it's like it's always the new army right? <laughs> right. the dudes point. in the 40s that you know are 1944 climb point to hoe you know from second range of town yeah. they're like that new you know that new army right <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> it's, it's always going to be the new army right? right and there's ups and downs you know you can argue whether we're we're up or down you know right now i think we're down personal opinion in a lot of respects because um, our eyes off the ball for a lot of reasons but um, it's always going to be changing. It's always going to be adapting. There's going to be highs and lows. You know, it is what it is. You know, it was the Ranger Battalion when I was in better than now. Depends on what they're doing. I think if it was out in the field infantry type mission, I think the Ranger Battalions of the 80s probably would, yeah, you know, outperform some of the guys I saw, you know, during the global war on terrorism. They're very urban focused, right? And I, I had the opportunity to comp uh, accompany some Ranger Platoons out in the field, and I saw them do some stuff kind of out away from the urban environment that's like mm, you know yeah. maybe not super sound but by the same token i watched a ranger battalion rip down you know an objective as precise as some of the special missions units and better in many ways right and kind of their fire and fury and stuff like that so it's it just depends right it's, mm -hmm. uh, as long as you're always kind of consistently trying to be the best you can so it's, I, i've never been one to be like well i was here and it was better yeah. it's like whatever you know mm -hmm. I think you're you're exactly right. Like, you're better at what you did, but that's, that's not my mission. I talk like a lot of my buddies. We're old enough now that we look back or we like talk to the guys that are in. And we're like, it's not real ranger, and you know, we're now we're the ones gnashing our teeth. But I like I don't know what your mission is anymore. You know, yeah. like it, I, you're clearly better than us at what you're doing. You're not losing guys all the time. Like, yeah, and and so there's only so much capacity, right, to be able to yes. do stuff. So it's you're better at something than another, right? And you're always kind of interchanging it, and it's why you always hear about the military changing missions because you can't do everything, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe we could if we didn't do so much paperwork. But you know, mm -hmm. uh, well, there there's still you know we know, and we've talked about this on uh, past episodes. A lot of people who are staying 10, 12, 14, 15 years inside. Ranger Regiment, either in one of the battalions or regiment headquarters. They move around. They go to different positions. They take on new responsibilities in different ways. They may be, you know, going from platoon sergeant to, you know, going to battalion headquarters and S3 shop, and then they leave there, and they go, you know, take over a first sergeant position and 
on and on and on type of stuff and not really live in the Abrams Charter, but it also makes it difficult for new people to come in a new blood. And I think you almost need that, you need that churn because it makes the unit better overall to get those new people coming in um, that are going to bring a different challenge, that are going to bring unique experiences and stuff as well. Yeah, yeah. I think that's any unit. But you've you've got to be willing to, absolutely, if, you know, sometimes groupthink does, does set in, you know, unless you're, I've seen some units that are actually pretty, you know, have inoculated themselves against it pretty well, you know, in the scheme of things. But you're right. So it's like anything. You just, you know, you come in and look at a problem different when you're not just kind of sitting there with the same set of glasses on. So, again, there's plus and minuses, right? Like you get this folks that stay there for a long time and you get people who just absolutely know everything inside now. But by the same token, are they, you know, are they really looking at things appropriately and whatnot? So... How long did you stay at first? A couple of years, two years, a normal lieutenant rotation. That's when I went, you know, put in my packet to go to SFAS. So was I, it I, because you work with some folks there? What, you know, or, or No, what, you what know, was it was it? always kind of a list of things I wanted to do, you okay. know, just yeah. as you kind of look through it. And it really weighed that one, right? Like, hey, if I go do this, I'm not going to be able to come back to the Ranger Regiment, right? Yeah. So I was enlisted there as an NCO in the Ranger yeah. Regiment. I had been an officer in the Ranger Regiment, you know. I used to get a lot of crap because I always wore my Ranger Regiment DUI even when I was at SF, right? Like yeah. People would be like, why are you wearing that? And I'm like, because it's where I grew up, right? It's like, you know, it's my hometown, if you would, yeah. right? We had to talk about hometowns before. <laughs> so, you know, it was really my hometown. Ranger Regiment is my hometown. But uh, the thing that was intriguing about the SF mission, right, was you're part of this team, you're cross-trained, and as a small team, you go off and do stuff, whereas, you know, even in the Ranger Regiment, you at least a company, right? And it was like a whole company, yeah. had a lot of overhead. So it was really intriguing to think, like, wait, 12 dudes go do this or two guys go and work in an embassy and, and just kind of the that unique aspect of it. And I remember being in Panama. You know, we went to Panama a whole bunch of times uh, back in the 80s, you know, when the whole Noriega thing was going on as a lead-up to that. And I just remember seeing the... SF teams down there, and uh, I did some water training. I did, like, scout swimmer stuff, and then so I got an opportunity to, like, train with these uh, SF teams, and they're like, yeah, you know. They brought their little uh, foldable um, kayaks, right? The, the And I'm like, where'd you guys cool. get these? And they're like, from the Norwegians. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. And the guy's like, well, I went to the Norwegian water school. And I'm like, wait, what? So I thought that was kind of neat how these guys are out doing that stuff. And, and again, there's this SF team kind of doing – FID for us as a ranger unit down there at the uh, Jungle Operations Training Center and stuff. And uh, I thought I just thought that was really neat. So it was always kind of in the back of my mind, even from when I was enlisted, uh, about going to, to do that. And uh, so when the time came, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and pull the trigger, right? Because particularly as an officer, you know, as an NCO, you get a little bit, your window is much longer to go do something like that, right? Whereas the officer corps, it's like, you're in these year groups mm. and you got to make these like year group decisions. So whereas I think an NCO, you probably have vice this, here's the one year you get to make this decision, right? Yeah. You, you may have three or four, you know, yeah. years to kind of make that before you kind of get into a different category and stuff. So I thought long and hard about it and put in my packet, which at the time was, and I don't know how it is now, but in Ranger Regiment at the time, yeah. particularly for the officer corps saying you're going to go SF was not good. It, it, it's not changed. Oh yeah, no. we, I had one of uh, really I, I had one of the officers who became a four star come out and counsel me at a range about you know that. Wow, it wasn't per se a negative counseling, but it was like, hey, do you think you're making the right decision type thing? So it was, um, 
it was just kind of a testimony between the friction between the the different facets of kind of the special operations community mm-hmm. there and perceptions. Some of it was a negative perception of SF, whether it was rightfully earned or not. You know, you can yeah. argue that and stuff. But you get to put your hands in your pockets. and Yeah, it was a lot of that. But <laughs> but by the same token, you know, it's uh, one of the... Th- I'm just going to go on that tangent since you mentioned it. You know, it's th- that's the biggest thing that people say, right? Like yeah. SF, it's no hats, long hair, put your hands in your pockets and stuff like that. And, you know, to take a team like 12 people or two people and and have them go be unconventional warriors, right? Like if you get back to what SF was built to do, which was go behind enemy lines and link up with partisans and, you know, get them to do our bidding, you know, whether our bidding is the exact same as theirs or, you know, try to convince them to go, you know, do something directly for us, like create something, right? That takes a unique mindset. That doesn't take a dude who wants spit shine boots and, you know, stuff like that. That's a unique mindset. And I, I, I think one of the things the military really grapples with and and really this was just a manifestation of it that kind of negative attitude towards a lot of folks towards the towards sf was who cares right this guy's going to be wearing civilian clothes behind enemy lines you know doing crazy stuff and and trying to fit in with the organization if you want the dude who wants spit shine boots and stuff like that he's not the guy that's that's for that mission right that he's because he's probably the guy that's like everything's got to be like critically in order and his head's going to explode when it's like, Hey, you're not getting ammo. Go figure it out. Right. Just like in Afghanistan on our first trips, it's like no electricity. Okay. Figure it out. No food, figure it out. We didn't have any, we, we bought all our gasoline for our vehicles off the Afghan economy. We drove from town to town and bought gasoline off the Afghans. Right. With a bag of cash. And and it's just like, well, I don't have this established supply system. Figure it out, right? And it's like going back, we found these Chinese generators and, you know, my guys fixed it, right? Just They just figured it out. So it's a whole different mentality and kind of because you get this band of tinkers and stuff like that, the absolute people you want, they're not going to, they're not conformist, right? And that's exactly what they should be, nonconformist, right? Because hell, they're going to go create an insurgency. That by definition is a nonconformist. So, so that's the band of misfits you want. It's like gun, you know, Force Ten from Navarone. That's the group yeah. you want, right? And and just people couldn't understand that. And that kind of battle has waged inside the special operations community for a long time, uh, unnecessary so. Um, and I think some of the more senior leaders, like when I went over to Afghanistan as a battalion commander, I think people were kind of getting it because those folks who really wrestled with it had been, were starting to be bred out, right? Those were the sergeant majors and the battalion commanders and that stuff that hit were pre 9-11, they were gone. So like when I went over as a battalion commander, it was probably the best operating environment I'd been in. Unfortunately, it was towards the end of the war, right? Like mm-hmm. things, that was when it's like, we're pulling out, you know, and that's yeah. right then is kind of the last kind of real, bigger combat operation. It still went on. Our guys were out the wire, but the convention guys were like massive with withdrawing after us and stuff like that. They'd start doing it while I was there. So it was unfortunate. It took that long to manifest where the conventional commanders like understood what the SF teams are doing and the Ranger guys out doing strikes. We were all just kind of getting there. Cause it wasn't like that. <laughs> you know, and all the t- other times I'd been there, it wasn't like that. And it's just like, it's finally getting right, and now we're, we're leaving, yeah. right? It's just only took 20 years. but 
Did you volunteer for seventh? Is it like enlisted where you get a wish list? I'd, uh, I'd put, I think my number one was 10th group to go, you know, cause I wanted to go back home to Colorado and yeah. stuff like that. And then I put seventh, uh, number two and stuff. So they, uh, I went to seventh and honestly, I'm, I'm glad I did, uh, got that. So somebody up above was looking out for me cause, um, seventh is just a, all the groups are great. Obviously I'm exceptionally biased. Right. So, um, but, but seventh is pretty phenomenal in, in one respect. At one point it was really the only SF group that was really doing exactly what SF was designed to do, which was, you know, be very fluent in the culture and the language, go down and be completely embedded throughout the region and be, be influencing. Like we didn't take interpreters and granted we our our environment was one, the language is easier. Yeah. You know, the poor fifth group guys who had to learn three different variations of Arabic and stuff like that. And the first group guys who had a bazillion of the hardest languages on the planet to learn, <laughs> right. right? Like that. So it's nothing on that. So sometimes it was the environment, right, yeah. that that drove that. Nothing on the groups themselves, right? Because on any first group team, you get guys that Tagalog and Chinese, you know, two yeah. three different variations of that and stuff like that. So it's, it's incredibly challenging. Where seventh group is easy, it's right. The primary language is Spanish. And you got Portuguese is probably the next one, and a smattering of other stuff out there. But if you got Spanish, you're pretty much good, right? And then Colombia was going on, you know, oh, yeah. we, were, we were deep into Colombia. Um, huge success story, but throughout the whole region, right? Nicaragua. El Salvador, Nicaragua, all that stuff. So seventh group really was in the, in the mix of it when there wasn't really a big shooting wars going on. The seventh group was, was smack dab in. And I never really thought about yep. that, uh, but you're right. Because, uh, yep. the other, well, there were some coups or some things going on in the Philippines at one point. Um, yeah, there were there were periods and in, in experiences the other groups had. But but, but you're it, right, South but America. But again, it's it's kind of the environment that that it played out in was was optimal again, just because of the construct. It's the singular almost language aspect, which mm -hmm. meant that we could be very, you know, deep in the culture and and language. And then just because this stuff was playing out in our backyard, there was a lot more interest to get after it down there, both on the um, insurgent and the Marxist stuff going on, but then also the drugs, right? right? So you had a twofold. So a lot of interest down there. So seventh group was getting counter narcotics funding at a much greater level than other organizations out there and stuff like that. So it just really enhanced the missions down there and stuff. And, uh, um, you know, it, it was great to be able to go do that. And just, just the variation of, of the operations, you know, because yeah. we had counter narcotics missions, we had JSETs, we had security assistance, you know, we had the full gamut of kind of stuff where a lot of my peers were doing a six week JSET here or something here. We were deployed in Colombia. I mean, we had an entire battalion at one point down in Colombia and uh, we had guys doing the counter narcotics wow. rotation. So we were doing six month deployments in Colombia you know, before the, the war kicked off. So we were doing these long-term deep engagements down there with the Colombians and, and other countries and stuff. And, and it only grew once, you know, once the war started and there was a greater appetite to get involved in countries to kind of preclude things from getting worse in areas. So is that where everything ended? At seventh group, or did you end up going to like first special forces command or something like that? Um, you know, I stayed with seventh group. I did a, um, I was embedded with Iraqis. I was still signed to seventh group, so did did the Afghan rotation seventh group, and then went to Iraq for a year. Um, 
kind of embedded with the Iraqis when, when they were initially couldn't really get the Iraqis back. That was uh, 05, 06, I think. Mm. Is that right? I think so. All kind of blurs together at this point. Um, and then I did a um, two-year, I went to grad school at the Naval Postgraduate School. Oh, and then nice. kind of my command and general staff college stuff. So I was out for about two years for that. And then I went to uh, U.S. Northern Command um, out in Colorado Springs for two years. So it was about the only assignment I actually got back at home. So they, we didn't have a special operations command at the time, so we were just standing that up. So I went out and joined a very small team. It was about 20-some people. Uh, half of those were civilians and the other half were military. So it was awesome. It was a very small team um, that was kind of doing missions, counter-terrorist counter type controls, uh, um, disaster support and relief, which is for us, you know, the other folks, the conventional side had that one, but we were really focused on the southern border, making sure terrorist threat streams, you know, weren't in place. The U.S. Northern Command has kind of like disaster response to include nuclear stuff uh, for the United States in oh, conjunction cool. with the civilian agencies. And then, uh, you know, we had um, U.S. Northern Command's partnered, you know, with uh, – has Mexico, it doesn't fall under U.S. Southern Command, so there was that. So I went out and did two years out there, but the rest of the time, once I went to SF, was all in seventh group. So that's the other incredible thing about all the groups, right? Is they're just these families because you're you're in these groups, particularly the NCOs, right? You stay in this group, and only when you're about to start major do you might you go to the to the schoolhouse, do your schoolhouse tour, but you go right back. And sometimes people opt to go do different stuff, but uh, the they, they started putting the sergeant majors on these command lists that it's only, it's weird, like, okay, you're going to do it with the officers, but don't do it with the NCOs, right? <laughs> like, have a sergeant major from first group come to seventh group or vice versa. I mean, we spend so much time getting culturally oriented. It's just, yeah. that's the one thing that's always been a head scratcher for me. And it's like, okay, you're doing the shell game with the officers on this command list stuff. And it's just kind of weird when they started doing that with the NCOs. But generally everybody stays in that same group. So you're just with folks for, for years, you know, decades, a lot of times. Cool. So. Yeah. Mike. Yeah. So you get to know these folks really, really well. And you just kind of, you know, it's like my company sergeant major was my, when I became the group three, he was my operations sergeant major. Right. So there was none of yeah. us trying to figure each other out. We'd, you know, we'd been together for years and you just kind of always flitter around with folks and, you know, and it's neat to watch guys on your team, you know, kind of grow up and they're the battalion sergeant majors while you're, you know, you're sitting in the operations or whatever. So you're always just working together, which creates this really awesome environment. You just kind of know people so you can get stuff done, right? So, so you know, that we had the commanders and extremist forces, so they were actually the, the counterterrorism response part for the geographic com combatant commanders because they're actually combatant command assigned to them, unlike the other, other organizations. So... That's one organization that the geographic command commander didn't have to say, mother, may I? They could say, hey, get on a plane, go here, right? And you have to go to the joint staff to ask for permission. So those are created for that purpose. So there are a lot of things you can do that, you know. So it's kind of more direct action, counter-terrorist advice, you know, kind of the normal SF side of the house. But then there are other special activities. And just in my time, you know, I, I led a mission that was 13, you know, um, interagency folks, right, or two Department of Defense folks and 13 of the whole, you know, everything from Homeland Security and customs and stuff like that. So you get these unique experiences. You just don't, you're not going to get if you're on the conventional side, you know, working out of yeah. the 
a country for a couple of years and stuff like that from everything from counterterrorism to, you know, counter narcotic stuff. So it's, I mean, the, the depth and breadth is something you just wouldn't get from anywhere else. So, you know, it's unfortunate you can't kind of replay it and do both, right? Like being a part of the range regiment, doing all the great stuff they're doing in Iraq and Afghanistan, that yeah. strike mission. Cause everybody likes strike missions, right? Yeah, like it's fun. Smacking targets and shooting people shooting in people the face. face right? yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's awesome, right? That's what movies are made out of and stuff. But then there's a lot of other cool stuff. that's yeah. kind of more behind the scenes, you know, as well. So it's, uh, too bad you can't do both in, in a lifetime, but do a little bit of both. I yeah, guess. you can do a little bit of both. Yeah. I think. I think that's like the, the ideal career if you're like if that's your mindset. You know, like you said, starting a ranger battalion and you get to about the time they want to send you out for your charter, which now is E6. It may have changed recently, oh, wow. but yeah, it was E6 for a while. When I was there, they they uh, they started sending guys out when they made E6 to be recruiters and drill sergeants, oh, which people lost their minds. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, there's some upset rangers yeah. there. Although I think at, at, at E6, going to be a drill sergeant, that's kind of perfect. I mean, you need yeah. to go do that. You can give so much to those young recruits, and it can be really rewarding if you're it's still you tough right when you're, uh, you're like a ranger squad leader and you get called down the platoon sergeant office one day. <laughs> going to yeah. recruiting duty at USAREC, that had to been, yeah. I've I, I seen a lot like of those guys. By the way, I've seen some careers ruined because they, during the time frame that I was recruiting, you know, they'd come out there and they just weren't good recruiters. But unfortunately, that was a bad mark on their record. Oh. You know, yeah. so, you know, you get some bad NCOERs and everything else. It depends on Big Army when you go back and whether or not that they looked at it with a whole lot of weight. But sometimes they'd look at it and go, well, geez, if you were a dirtbag out there and you can't, you know, do the mission, then what makes you be a good NCO here? Yeah, it's unfortunate. You know, I hate bashing. You know, I'm not bashing recruiters. So for the folks out there, it's just, it's a tough mission, right? And yeah, uh, one, I think it's a skill, right? There's there's good recruiters because it's a sales job, it, right? It's, right. It's not a, everybody's cut out for it. It's a, it's a combination of a talent selection, sort of, right? And you're you're kind of the first line Selling of defense, in, in the, uh, and then it's sales. No intangibles. I mean, so you can't yeah. like say, you know, to paint a picture in a way that they can touch it, feel it, smell it. That's what that video was for. Yeah, yeah, no. To, to, like I to said, strike there, those emotions. There was not much work involved in this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, it, it's a tough job. I mean, I, I feel for guys uh, out there and you're trying to make, you know, make, make kind of those quotas and stuff like that. I, I certainly don't have the answers. It's just, you know, guys in Ranger Battalion, they come in to be a war fighter and stuff like yeah. that. So I think there's some challenges when you, you jerk somebody out to, to go do that. And some, some folks excel at it. You know, I've known... Uh, I don't know any NCOs that kind of came from, you know, other than when I was enlisted and an NCO in the Ranger Regiment. But, you know, I've known a couple of officers or battalion commanders. It's a it's a tough environment, particularly now out there, you know, to, to kind of meet those quotas. So We just had a guy, last time we did this, uh, last time we did a big shotgun blast with a, a bunch of guests. One of them was an SF guy from 7th um, who went off and now is a drill sergeant down here at Fort oh, Benning. Yeah. Yeah, and he's excited uh, about it. Too. He's excited about it. Yeah, yeah. You know, for uh, for SF guys, frankly, though, there, there's a lot to be gained out of that. You know, and so it, it's training, right? Like one of the key things, like the primary mission to SF is unconventional warfare. Go behind enemy mm -hmm. lines, raise, you know, link up with or raise recruit a guerrilla army, and then use it, you know, for whatever national purposes we're trying to do, right? Or link up with somebody like the Taliban to overthrow. 
Um, so sometimes that includes training, right? Yeah. So being a drill sergeant, just kind of learning that. Clearly, they're not going to use the same methodologies on some, sure. you know, normal alliance military you meet. But, but we also do foreign internal defense, right? We just go down there and help help folks. And sometimes that's a long game. I mean, that's Columbia. Columbia is a big shining example of success using special forces. Um, there ever was, in my opinion. El Salvador and, and Colombia are big ones really? and stuff. And uh, so having those skills really helps out, though, with it. Oh, yeah, like Colombia was on its knees about to fall, and uh, SF went in there and really with the principal arm for what became as the uh, Colombian Counter Narcotics Initiative. Okay. So a ton, billions of dollars are pumped in there. And, and, there, and don't get me wrong, there was tons of support, helicopter pilot training, sure. some others, but... The vast majority of the training that went on down there came from Seven Special Forces Group, you know, for the ground forces. And wow. uh, I mean, there was conventional for- folks down there, but you know, training the counter narcotics brigades, training the um, the military group, built their special operations, who are absolutely world class special operations organizations now. These Colombians are just incredibly talented special ops and uh, know their obviously know their yeah. operational environment it's funny you go look at I would laugh because when we go down there we were in BDUs when we went to those ridiculous ACUs right because yeah. it's just the stupidest uniform ever on, in history so hey whoever yep. designed that if you if you hear my voice <laughs> you're ridiculous right um, <laughs> and whoever you. approved purchase of those you're ridiculous too um, so we'd wear BDUs, and they were wearing kind of BDUs. They went to kind of a, their own in, in uh, camouflage later, but they were so good, and, and we equipped them, right? So they had our night vision goggles and M4s and PQ2s and whatever the lasers after that and stuff. So you, sometimes you couldn't tell your guys from them except for a little bit of the height difference yeah. and stuff. Yeah, they're, they're incredibly cool. talented, you know, and, and, they, and their processes, they basically adopted – our processes, the U.S. military and our special operations, like their SOPs and stuff like that. So, and now they're they're kind of running it, and they're actually exporting foreign internal defense to countries surrounding them because of really? the success of that no and stuff. But, but you know, it it's the huge injection of cash help, mm-hmm. but having the right folks down there from Seventh uh, Group was really a game changer. Same yeah. thing with El, El Salvador, right? Just you know, a lot of conventional trainers and stuff, but the consistent presence that was going on from the Seventh Group guys in that country was really what ter- turned the tide of that war, right? That wow. just continued professionalism and training and and persistence and. Again, having people down there 360 days of the year all the time directly working with them, it really became a partnership. But Which, yeah. which one was it um, that where today they probably have one of the best ranger schools because that knowledge was transferred as well? Yeah, it's uh, the Lancero School down in yeah, Columbia. That's, it's that's a little nice. bit different. It's a pretty brutal school, and yeah. the guys that come out of that are rightfully. There are some seventh group guys that's gone yeah, through there, it, right? there's Oh, yeah, there's a lot that, that go through that. Um, I, I don't think there's a guy in every class or maybe, but yeah, we have seven groupers down. We, we put the Brazilian and others, but the Lancero course is, is a tough one. So the guys who get through that are, um, yeah, they're wear that badge with honor cause they earned it. Like they're, yeah. they've got this POW phase, this seer phase. And cool. let me put it this way. They don't have the same prohibitions <laughs> that our seer school has, right? It's uh, you're going to get abused. So when you come out of there, you know what the POW experience is like yeah. for real. Right. So it's uh, our guys, you know, the guys come out of that with 
lots of parasites and it takes a little bit of recovery time from that but uh again it's an incredibly tough course and yeah. um yeah, we need to get one of those fun. guys on. So if you're listening and you went through that, definitely want to get you on the podcast. Yeah, Love to hear more about it. Linked up with some folks because yeah, that'd be cool. Everybody earns that pin, wears it very proudly, and yeah. as they should. What is it? It's a pin, like a bat? Yeah, it's a pin that says Lancero on it. Okay, you know, it's kind of got a little wreath, wreath look to cool. it and stuff. It's uh, it's it's cool. But yeah, the Colombians, um, great. You know, they have done a phenomenal and a, a great organization, a great country. What, was it around this time frame in Colorado that you ended up retiring, or? No, I retired out of out of Florida in 2015, and and uh, went through um, a transition program. So the one I'm, yeah. I'm running right now, and uh, got a got a. Oh, so uh, you you went through the program you're running now. So we want to we want to switch gears to that. So, but you went through the regular ACAP transition assistance program type of thing. Yep. But how did you get linked up with this foundation, this organization? Yeah. So you know, I was going through my about a year off from transition. My uh, um, uh, I got a call and said, "Hey, I just went to this went to this uh, fundraiser for this organization." At the time, it was called Your Grateful Nation. Uh, we, oh, we changed our name about a year ago. Yeah. I did not put the two together. Yeah, a lot of a lot of folks don't and stuff. Um, so about a, so they're like, hey, check I this organization. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's gonna, us. Yeah, uh, it's great. Re- rebranded. <laughs> so we got. Uh, uh, I, I called you know, and they answered and I said, hey, you know, I'm about a year out and stuff. Uh, can you tell me about your program? So went through the program and um, they're able to. I came up here to Atlanta and did some networking and met some folks and and. Uh, via kind of the process I went through and being able to be brought up here to Atlanta. I met some folks at, uh, at, at uh, SunTrust Bank up here, and uh, they brought me on. So, so but your, wait, your Grateful Nation wasn't always in Atlanta based, was it? No, so originally the uh, the zip code was in uh, Washington, D.C. Okay. Right? So the reality is is we, there was an office up there for a period of time, but really nobody works Visibility at the office. Visibility right? or yeah. like just on the address. It was well, there. it was an address and stuff like that, and, and you know, it was office space, but the reality is is we're supporting special operations uh, veterans or, you know, operators who are transitioning nationwide and, God, uh, you're taking me way back. Did you go back and look to see? We had somebody I thought that was one of the either founders or the leading people of your Grateful Nation. I want to say, let's see that one. God, I'm gonna you're gonna make me go back and dig now because I could have sworn we had them on. I may be lying because it's been so everything's fuzzy because I do get in contact with people who talking with me about their organizations and stuff. But um, I believe at that time frame. If I remember correctly, it was like you take these uh, soft operators, you link them in with businesses, you'd even give them a suit, you'd fly them, you know, where they need. I mean, it was just like, this is wicked cool, you know, yeah. and it was very different than uh, there was an organization that Green Bray Foundation was actually um, starting that was similar to that. Yeah. But not as charged as your Grateful Nation, who was doing a much better job, I thought, at really linking it in and honing and i know we're going to get a little bit into this but really honing into what are the skill sets experiences and everything else that this individual is going to do where's the organization who may look at them in a very different set of lens than perhaps your friendly military uh, company would look at who may place them in just specific jobs three or four these companies that you worked with or your grateful nation worked with were more in tune with what these guys have done on active duty and it may place them in more senior roles and 
and stuff like that than you're just average project manager or, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So your grateful nation, I went through it in 2015, 16, our programs matured a, a fair amount and, and the scale that we're at is, is fundamentally different. So the organization was created in 2013. The first candidates went through it in 2014 and, and it was four back then. And then in 2015, it was like seven. I was like the 12th person. I started in 2015, so I was like two, yeah, the 12th, if I remember right. So it's just kind of grown incrementally. This year, we'll probably do 120, 250, somewhere in between. And I think it's going to be on the higher end. What a huge difference. It is fundamentally different. So we're at that, we're like uh, any startup, you know, we're in that <laughs> scaling thing. So my, my main mission right now is to ensure that we maintain the integrity of the program yeah. while, while we're scaling, which is, you know, any, any organization, any company's challenge out there. So that's something that's near and dear to me because regardless of what goes on, right, it's, it's taking care of these operators and their transition. To me, that is a no fail mission, pure and simple, right? That's why we were created. That's why we exist. I went through this program. It helped me transition positively. And I'll, I'll talk about what that means in a bigger scale here in a second. But so for me, it's, not even just like, hey, it's my job. It's like, I don't care if it's my job. It's we got to maintain this because um, it's it's part of taking care of the service members, right? Um, that doesn't stop when you take your uniform off. And for me personally, you know, coming out of the military, it's the biggest difference on the civilian side of the military is just kind of being around the team. Like we were talking about the tattoos and what that means. It's part of this brotherhood, right? It's like brotherhood of the scroll. Right? Yeah. It doesn't end when you take your uniform off and it, goes back and even with all the trash talking between different generations it's it's always there so that's what this organization is trying to do is make sure we take care of our brothers and, and sisters now coming through this program make sure they have a positive transition um talking about that positive transition piece right so we do career transition but we partner with other organizations that if we need to point people at different things like alternative medicines and stuff like that make sure they're working with um veteran support organizations for like their VA claims. We don't do that directly, but we, we let them know which organizations are out there. But you hear about it a lot about mental health and well-being and just, you know, where people are post-transition. I personally think a lot of what you see manifest out there is because people have really crappy transitions. Right? Yep. Either it's because of their whatever happened to them or just how they handled it or if even if they did a great job and they just kind of get out – what they're missing is they, they had a really crappy transition. They didn't land in a place where um, they've got a good career, not just a job, because my organization doesn't do jobs, right? That's not what we're here. We're helping people find a new, something they can be passionate about. Mm. And it may not, they may not land on the exact perfect fit the first time, but we want to get them into a good, great fit. And then they can get an exceptional fit, purposeful, you know, and have their own kind of career path, however they navigate it. But I, I do believe that a part of what you see out there, a lot of this depression and other stuff, is people get unplugged, right? Like yeah. we just talked about Agreed. these these great special operations organizations. It doesn't matter if you're a Ranger Regiment guy or a Navy SEAL or Marine Raider or, or yeah, AFSOC. You've been around this family. It's a very high-performing yeah. team. And even if the service isn't performing like the military service, you know, Bob's having trouble. You know, everybody shows up at the house to be like, hey, Bob is sick, you know. Um, like we had one of our the guys in our battalion get cancer and he passed away and the unit has still to this day takes care of that family goes over wow. and makes sure the house is mowed checks the fence and and that story is replicated over and over and over through every you know every organization yeah i could tell you that seal teams are doing it you know the sf guys are doing it 
So it's his family, right? So when people transition, they, they feel unplugged from the family. Now you throw in there, right? So it's, it's all this mixing of a fuel air explosive. So bad transition, they got family dynamics, families not happen, they're depressed, they feel unplugged, they don't have any, anything to connect to. It's bad, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where you get the depression, in my opinion. Not, not all of it, but a substantial portion of yeah, it, right? You could definitely start there well, with the Well, it's a manageable portion, too. Like, that's something tangible you can do something Well, you about. can pick different pieces off, right? Like, yeah. you pull off, and you're like, we're going to have you have a great tra- career transition, right? Yeah. Like, make sure you... And then get to a place where you not only have a great transition, like, you actually walk out the door. Because there's more to it than just walking out the door of the military, right? Yeah. And you land in this good place, and then you make sure that they're pursuing something else purposeful and passionate, right? Right. And then, you know, a big discussion I have had with folks is you've got a cup, and that cup may be four fistful or half full with all that. Now, what are you going to fill with? What, what else can you be purposeful and passionate about? For me, it was kind of coming back to this organization uh, when, when my good friend Rob Carilla was saying, hey, I'm, I've, you know, I'm moving on to, to run some initiatives in, in his own company he had and stuff. And... Uh, so for me, it was the ability to come back and be purposeful, purposeful and passionate in helping these these veterans transition, right? So you got to fill the cup and stuff like that. And so transition just isn't in a job. It's just not about your VA, right? It's, it's about yeah. making sure you have complete well-being and you're plugged into a community that can kind of sustain you. And maybe it's uh, hanging out with your, you know, your SEAL friends or, you know, uh, maybe it's an entrepreneurship, maybe it's a church, maybe whatever it is, right? Plugging it's like, you into plug, something, yeah. yeah. Make sure you're thinking about it and make sure you have that positive transition. So our organization plays a part in that, right, by working very specifically with the operators. So anybody that's been in the military, special operations community, and or intelligence community. Okay. So we've had folks from the intelligence agencies come through, like the the uh, case agents and stuff oh, like really? that. Yeah. That's cool. So anybody who's been through an assessment selection, because for us, that's, it, that's just our charter and we started with, and it's kind of the product, too, that we work with. Like these very high-performing folks have already been assessed and selected. So that's the raw material, and then uh, then we work with them with a target of about 12 months, right? So this is in addition to any of their transition assistance program stuff they're doing. But we take them, we talk about their timeline, talk about what it is that they're important, uh, what's important to them, where do you want to live, what do you think you want to do, do you know? Because some people already know, some people yeah. don't. You know, I've talked to folks that are like, I want to be an investment banker in Chicago. Okay, yeah. great, wow. right? And I've had people like myself who are like, I have absolutely no crew, right? I've been a soldier since I was 17. I have no idea, right? So you, you get the gamut. So we just want to sense that out. But do they? Do you do like a series of tests or stuff like that to help with the process? Yeah, or? so it's a little bit, um, like, you know, you had previous guest on here, Casey Clark, you know, and he talked a little bit about it. So it's multiple phase. So we get some information from them, their transition time, what it is they want to, you know, uh, what they think they want to do. A big one is, you know, where are you going to live? Because living in a location defines your opportunity, right? Mm. COVID has made things a little bit better with kind of virtual work options. But the reality is, is where you plant your flag really does define a lot of your opportunities and, and whatnot. So um, kind of where you at in your education and experience level. And then from there, we start a process of coaching where it's working with our executive coaches and um, looking at uh, yourself first and foremost, mm. right, and taking some tests, and it's like, hey, how do you how do you interface with people, and how do people perceive you, right? So that's that's a big one. And then, what are your internal and external motivators? What are your in op, op, 
optimal operating environments, right, based on those. So we can paint a picture of this person. We call it the executive profile, but it's really just a profile uh, as much for them as anything else, actually more for them, so they understand themselves, how their people perceive it. And then from there, we can calibrate it against if they know what they want to do or think they want to do something, calibrate it against that, right? And or say, hey, look, you're off the charts on all the attributes that would make you an awesome salesperson, right? And everybody's like, oh, I don't want to be a used car salesman. And it's yeah. like, well, see all those people sitting in the first class seats on an airplane? Yeah. Almost all of them are salespeople, right? Those are the people who make money for companies. Those, you know, yeah. so it's like, have you ever thought about this? You can be successful. You're, you know, you're delivering service to people, satisfaction, right? It's not this yeah. dirty used car piece that everybody thinks right. it is, right? So, anyways, it helps cal calibrate that because you get a lot of people who are like, oh, I've never thought about that, right? And then, uh, then we start trying to get them aligned to big chunks of functions, right? Like. What is big picture? What is it you want to do? Do you want to be kind of operations in the middle of things day to day or traffic control and like a group ops guy? Do you want to build new things like a project manager? Do you want to sell? You know, there's a lot of stuff out there. Do you want to be an expert in something? And then from there, we can start to take and translate their skills, attributes, and experiences and start to connect them with um, kind of coaches and mentors, right? And so if you say, hey, I'd like to be in the medical field, you know, the medical space, the healthcare space, and I'd like to be in Nashville. Okay, well, then what we'll do is we'll figure out kind of what it is we think you're aligned against and then start putting you in contact with mentors and, and contacts. We have these coaches to say, hey, look, this person works in uh, device development. This person works in, you know, back in healthcare systems. This person works in healthcare delivery, right? So they can start to get exposed and have discussions with, with these um, coaches and mentors about these areas. And they can start to iteratively, it's almost like course of action development screening. Like, oh, yeah, I thought I wanted to be in the device, you know, building new devices. I'd rather go do this. Hey, I thought I'd like to do this. Until eventually they kind of narrow it down from a 180 degree sector to something that's a little bit more manageable. And then we can really start to, to focus on them to help build their networks their skills, like if you're in the financial world, you have to kind of get your, your different series of tests and certifications, or if they want to, hey, go into project management and technology world, we can get really more precise on helping them translate those skills, attributes, and experiences, certifications, and connections to networks, because it's really about the networks, right, that makes the difference. You can have the best program out there that teaches you how to write a resume, teaches you how to write, you know, LinkedIn, teaches you all this stuff, teach you how to network, but if you're not put in those networks right that's the other 50 percent. absolutely absolutely we talk yeah. about that a lot the old saying you probably heard on the podcast your network is your net worth you know yep. and and absolutely you got to be put in those situations but you're also surrounding yourself you know with those five people seven people that can really make a difference and love you know bring your level up because they're, you're going through a transition you're kind of a fish out of water it is and and uh uh, the intent of our piece, right? And like, we don't need to talk resumes until later on mm, okay. um, because a resume is pointless if it's not well translated and it's not focused on something, right? It's pointless. Yes. Right. And I am adamant about that with folks. It's, yes. There's a lot of things that start out and the first question I always get asked, and we do ask for a resume from folks, but it's really just so I can be like, oh, okay, they served in these roles and positions, stuff like that. Um, and that's it. But it's not until later because it's like uh, one of your previous guests said, you know, it's like there's before and after. You kind of have those coaching discussions. And and these aren't just coaching. They're like almost 
um, counseling sessions to kind of like really help you get to a point where it's like, okay, here's me and here's, here's the direction I go. And it may not be like this specific job role or anything like that, but it's this life direction because yeah. that's the most important piece. Cause you know, if your life direction is like, I've got to spend a lot more time with my family and do X, Y, and Z, but you want to go be a investment banker in New York city on, on the street. Well, it's, you know, that may not be compatible. So, you know, we got to calibrate it. It's that. So that assessment piece is, is great, but we, we really focus on understanding yourself, having a direction where you want to go. Cause then we have that, you can say, okay, let's just take project manager or, or let's say salesperson, right? Um, get away from the atypical project manager or salesperson. So you take an SF guy and they're like, I've never done sales. And I get asked this question at least once a week when I talk to companies, they're like, who, what have you done sales as a military guy? And yeah. it's like, I don't know. Have you ever got, tried to get two Afghan tribes stopped shooting at each other across <laughs> a river, right? Have you ever tried to get somebody who fundamentally thinks you're, you know, a, uh, um, you know, you're, you're a non-believer to follow you and, and do stuff for you? You ever worked in Capitol Hill and tried to get an appropriations bill through, right? You ever tried to get a Micon through a conventional dude? You know, yeah. you've done sales, right? It's it's a pitch. You're trying to close the deal on stuff. You just got to translate that, right? You've got to use language that the civilian side can understand, and and, and vice versa. You got to understand what they're saying too, because that's that's one of the biggest divides. So you, you can't write a resume until you do that. You finally understand where you're going, right? Because it's almost like azimuth and pace count what you're putting in this resume, but it's also going to be focused on that, you know, those grid coordinates that you're, you're marching to, even if it's that big hill, maybe not a six digit query coordinate, but it's like that big hill over there. Right. So that's when you can start writing this resume. You just continue to iterate on it. And then if you can talk about yourself, right, like you open up and the biggest thing about soft guys is talking about themselves, right. You don't have to be like, well, I shot 10 guys. I'm the hero and all that, but yeah. it's like, okay to say, Hey, you know, I was a platoon sergeant in charge of this, and here are my accountabilities. You know, we were at this fire base, and I was doing X, Y, and G, and I was, you know, in charge of logistics and life and, you know, $2 million worth of stuff and care and development and all these people and running these operations. I was, you know, as a battalion sergeant major, I'll do all this stuff. It's, you know, it, you can, you have that. It's just a matter of kind of pulling it out, translating it, and being able to talk about it. Like, here's here's yeah. the stuff I've done. It doesn't have to be a glory war story. It's just, yep. here's all the incredible stuff I've done. That's a breadcrumb trail to these people who are like, wow, that's incredible. We just did an event out in San Francisco. And the format when we run our networking events is we talk about special operations and the great things we do, but it's never combat missions, right? Like, you know, um, it's all about everything that kind of goes into the that piece, right? It's like the assessment selection of the right people, right? The high training of it. How do you retain? How do you develop people? All the things you've got to do, right? We we had, uh, you remember about, what was it, about a year ago when the SEALs went and rescued um, that person out in Africa? Yeah. Right? So had an event not long after that, and, uh, you know, everybody's like, oh, tell us about that. And I'm like, well, why don't I tell you what went into that, right? Like, here's this team that, that, you know, here's the selection assessment you have to do and to get them to that point. And then, oh, by the way, there's these air crews, right? They had to fly these hours. And you got this air crew that's got to look at it from, is my team ready? Are the aircraft ready? Is the weather okay? You know, is what's the enemy threat there? And do this risk assessment. And then all that stuff has to get to a location. Somebody's got to do the logistics planning 
right? And then from that, you know, it's just, you just roll this stuff and it's like, not only get there, but get it back. And the complexity of pulling together an operation and doing it like that, you know, that's, and they're usually like, oh my gosh, you know, how do you do that? And it's like, cause you get a great team together you train them, you have processes, you know, when to follow the process, you know, when to pivot. Right. And so you change the discussion to the point that you highlight the talent of these folks. And you know, this event that we just had in San Francisco, I had a ton of people coming through because we didn't talk about any kind of war stories to talk about all this other stuff that, that folks have these experiences kind of surrounding the warfighter aspect of the operators and, you know, and it kind of gets down to it that they're like, wow, this is exactly what I need. Because most of the problems business has and needs to fill, mm-hmm. it's <laughs> it's not super technical, right? It, it's like when I went to the bank, I worked in the technology space. It wasn't a technology problem. It was a get or done problem. Yeah. And the problem was... It's an is execution t- problem. Yeah. And, and so 98% of what was going on had nothing to do with technology. It had to do with... You know, is there a defined end state? Is yeah. there a plan around this end state? Is it communicated properly? Do do the folks know what it is, yeah. right? Are people being, do we have the right teams? Do they have the right resourcing? Are they performing, right? When when stuff happens, are people getting emotional, making decisions and moving? Or are they just pointing the finger at each other? And, and when you actually talk to businesses and you really decompose it, 90% or 80% of what they're looking for has nothing to do with like... yeah. Can I make, am I a science person? Can I make a whatever? Yeah. Am whether I, it's finance or whatever and, and yeah. over and over. And, and there's been some pretty good leaders, business leaders out there. They've been great. And they're just like, hey, I'm with you. I get that. Because they finally had enough failures of trying to find the, the investment person, the technology person or something like that who's, you know, not showing up engaged or just not taking accountability because they're viewing the world very myoptically. We, we're finally getting to a really good tipping point where we've got enough people who are coming who are like, yeah, I don't have this problem. You know, I'm a logistics company and I don't have this problem or I'm a construction company. I'll train construction. I'll train logistics. I just need somebody who's really going to kind of take accountability and own the situation and and drive on. And, and that's, that's what the kind of the operators we have. It's taken a long time though, for some businesses, I think to recognize that, that just in general, not even with military people, because, you know, when I got out, I was given that opportunity in a life sciences company. So people ask me, even when I got out, like, um, how the hell does army fit in with life sciences? It doesn't. Somebody gave me an opportunity. Um, I, I took that, uh, seized that opportunity, created another opportunity. And that's what my whole career has been about, you know, and, and everything that I've done. And you, and you, I'm listening to what you're saying. I'm going, Oh my God. Yeah, that's it. My biggest thing with kind of veterans and companies out there, right? If you look at the statistics, it's, it's pretty horrendous, um, overall. And, you know, percentage rise. Well, just the number, right? The veteran population is pretty low. We're, we're at a record low in veteran, well, almost record low. It bumped up a little bit um, just because of global war on terrorism. So the numbers did actually go up. At one point, you know, we were at 6% of the population were veterans, right? So if you actually get in the workforce. That's all wars, though. That's well. That's war popular. That's workforce based okay. on, and and I'd have to go back and look what the uh, Department of Labor don't have it. Usually, the reason I know is because I this is part of my pitch here and stuff. So, <laughs> so it's like six percent, right, of your working population, and and that's in general across everything, right? So when you actually then you move into, particularly the white collar space, now you're down below three percent. And when you get into senior managers and like senior managers, you're like at 1%. And then C-suites, 
Um, and if you look across particularly Fortune 500 companies, it's a percentage of a percentage that have a military background. So what that creates is this lack of understanding and a perception that, frankly, the, the military and some veterans kind of reinforce. And, uh, you know, in that this kind of land of misfit toys, right? Mm-hmm. So there's yeah. one, there's a lack of understanding. And then if they're fed a perception of kind of what veterans are, right, like hard drinking, you know, whatever, you know, yeah. fighting and stuff. And, yeah. and, you know, full disclosure, you know, I, I drink beer and stuff like that. But but there's this perception that's what? reinforced it because it's reinforced because they're watching these movies and sure. stuff like that. Post-traumatic stress, we talk about that. Drill sergeants and stuff like that. Yeah, post-traumatic stress. <laughs> Knife hand I, yeah. management. Yep, that's know. exactly it. And I can't, like, I had somebody come up and, and I was I, I was heading um, our veterans program here in Atlanta uh, for the company and stuff and had somebody come up and say, well, we had this veteran once and, and they're like this. And I'm like, Oh, who, who was it? Who was the manager? What position? Yeah. And it was, it was like the don't shoot people with 50 cal stuff. It's like, they heard it from somebody you heard it from somebody and yeah. it's like some phantom of a story. Right. And it's like, you know, so you're trying to tease out this bad experience. It's just this kind of rumor and it's either like, Hey, you know, the military style leadership doesn't go here. And I'm like, I, well, I don't know what you're talking about. And they're like, well, it's this knife edge hand, you know, they use that term. <laughs> we mm-hmm, use it. And mm-hmm. it's like, Hey, that doesn't even go in the military these days. Yeah. And particularly not the organizations I came through. Right. Um, they throw my stuff out in the hallway. So, <laughs> you know, it's, um, you're fighting kind of the stigma yeah. and then, then you get this, uh, you know, the hooray for veterans, right? Like we're going to have this initiative. We're create. a military friendly organization. Military friendly. And it's like, are you military friendly? You're actually moving the needle. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's like, Hey, we're creating 7,000 veteran jobs this year. Yeah. It's like, awesome. Can I see what they are? And they're entry level over and over and over and over. Right. And then you go online they're like, here's our initiative. And you go and look and it's, it's entry level positions. And I'm not saying that's bad, but like I tell them is it, it is bad in one way. I, I tell them that's great, but here's kind of the population, right? And there's the military publishes. You can get it like what ranks and kind of experiential level of getting out. And I'm like, if your program doesn't address this kind of chart, right, of, yep, you got the people getting out after three years. Yeah, that's probably appropriate, right? Yeah. Near entry level position. I'm not saying, yeah. hey, if you're a, you know, a strategic specialist in the range regiment, you should be CEO of, you know, a Fortune 100 company. That's <laughs> sure. by what, no way, shape or form is that what we're saying, but it's like, okay, let's kind of peer it out. If you've been in the military 10 years, you shouldn't be down in the trenches with, you know, an entry level position for somebody down there, right? You should have the opportunity. Like if you're truly a, a company that is a true advocate and somebody who's wanting to move the needle, you should structure your programs to be able to accommodate that entire group of people from those seniors all the way down, right? And most companies don't. Being very frank about it, there's tons that say they do, and all you got to do to to tell if that's the case, to double-click on it and say, can you show me by breakout of kind of the requirements? And they're all like, you know, whatever it is, three to five years experience, no experience or whatever. And it's hard to get people to understand. And then they're like, well, you know, we really need somebody with experience. Like it breaks down immediately and it becomes this this dialogue of like, well, we really need somebody with experience and name it. Logistic technology, blah, blah, blah. So then you're right at that point, you're in the discussion to say, look, what is the problem you really have, right? And that's that's where you really get that. That's the part that takes the time and people got to be willing to engage because a lot of times they quickly disengage, say, well, that's our opportunity and stuff. And and uh, but if they're open to engage, and then that's when you can kind of go in, 
um, and say, okay, well, what's the problem you're having? And by the time you peel it apart, particularly at those mid-level positions, it's just leaders that know how to lead and are accountable and stuff mm-hmm. like that, right? And really get the mission done and stuff. Um, but there's a lot more traits you got to get into, like management, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, the other, I said it, the other, you know, the other part of the problem, again, is is the veterans being able to communicate appropriately. Yeah. And I was part of that. It was worst, actually. One day I'm going to publish my very first resume I had our executive coach look <laughs> at. It's the most ridiculous thing. And his comments, you know, finally he's like, just call me, right? It was so bad because it's that ability to talk about yourself and kind of bridge that gap and stuff yeah. like that. So um, part of it is is veterans, you know, we got to get better, you know, on that. And that's what we help as an organization is be able to talk about yourself in a way they can understand because inevitably anybody above the rank of E5, E5 and above, it's like, what's your key attribute? And it's leadership. And it's like, well, <laughs> you got to, you got to kind of, <laughs> well, fundamentally I get it. And somebody who's been in the civilian side, you know, um, I get that intrinsically. I get it, but you got to be able to kind of break that down a little bit better into more tactical things that demonstrate value. Cause as a veteran, when you transition, the biggest thing you can come out with is an idea of what you, you want to do, where you want to live. Right. Um, and then, the ability to talk to people in their language. And it's exactly what we did in SF, right? It's like communicate to them in their language in a way they can understand so you can influence that decision. You've got to be able to make them get to the point where they're like, I believe I'm going to hit the button, right, and, and, and bring you in and stuff like that. Whenever we get one of our operators in, they always come back and want more every single time, right? Yeah. And so, And it's because they they got over that hard part, right? It's like buying a, you know, it's like buying a new product. It's like, oh, I don't know. It's pretty expensive. Let me, let me buy it. Right. And, and hiring is painful. You, you make a bad hire. It's something you're living with for like a year in a company. Cause you got to go through the pain of, okay, it's a bad, you know, hiring somebody pain of, okay, it's the wrong hire. And then finally getting somebody in. It's like this year cycle. Right. And that's damaging to a company. It's damaging to whoever the hiring manager is. So it's understandable. Um, but once you get that person where they hire one and it's, it's pretty easily, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to get somebody else in. I, I can see that there's still maybe, and I guess it depends upon the, the level of position that you go into, but there's probably still some communication or language gap or understanding between business and uh, business strategy is very different than military strategy. Um, and, and it depends upon whether you're a, a private company or a publicly traded company and, and all those types of things, too. Do you guys put them through somewhat of a mini business? Hey, let me make sure that you kind of understand how things work out here and how it might be a little bit different so that you can verbally communicate in a way that when you're selling yourself and showing how you're going to add value to the organization, you can demonstrate it in a way that it's applicable to the private sector. We don't put them through like a, like every every person that comes through our program is on their own track track. So there's not any kind of cohort. So we don't do it necessarily quite like that. So part of the the phase one assessment, it, it starts there, and then as they figure out what it is, we iterate on that. So like let's just say they did want to be a project manager in a technology space, right? So it's like, okay, well, here's what a P&L is compared to you going to the comptroller and saying, how much money do I get? And he tells you a million bucks, right? It's like a little bit different. It's basically you're like, yeah. hey, how much we spent? 900, right? P&L is different than a budget for sure. That's right, yeah. right. So anyways, so we, we work through them on kind of those individual tracks because the gamut of where we put people, we've got hospital directors to project managers and technology to sales to capital investors, you know, it's, it's all over the map of, of where people have landed that come through our program. So, 
um, you know, when somebody comes in, I just had somebody come in last week and it's like, oh, we don't have any contacts doing that, but we're going to help you find some, right? And so we'll we'll spin it and, you know, go out and figure it, whether I, I call, call what people. What was it? Do you remember? Yeah, it was uh, um, uh, insurance development, right? Development? Yeah. So what field, what, uh, field are like health insurance? Com- commercial. Commercial. Commercial insurance, okay. so. So I do all the initial intake calls, 100% of the initial intake calls. All of them? Yeah, every person that comes through our program that I talk to, and and it's kind of something we've done. And it's really just an initial screening piece, right? Like, um, well, it's not just an initial screening piece, but, you know, it's uh, it's like the hair club for men, right? Like, I'm not only the CEO, (laughs) but I'm I'm a user and stuff that... um, Probably date myself with that one. Yeah, too, yeah, right? yeah. You probably do. People are going to be going. Hey, what are they talking? What are they talking about? Um, yeah, but you know, it's it's uh, talking to to everybody. One, just kind of understand them and being a soft guy and and just getting an idea of, of screening through that. But also, um, I ask the question of like, you know, how 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 did you hear about us? And it's historically been kind of word of mouth and referrals, but now it's like, hey, I'm. You know, I'm monitoring, like, we post transit, what we call Transition Tuesdays and all our success stories. And with so many people in our program, it's pretty frequent. We've got multiple out there. And people are seeing that, hey, so-and-so, he's working at, you know, he just became a regional director for sales for X company. Or this person is, you know, project manager in this this, uh, biotech company. Or this person is now chief of staff on this data AI. Or this person is... Uh, a developer, you know, in this whatever, you know, mobile billing company stuff. And, uh, hey, you know, and then watching alumni because we're highlighting our alumni now that have come through the program. Yeah. And they're on these career tracks that most veterans, you know, they get out and they're like, well, I'm going to go work for the governor or be a contractor, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now people are seeing um, not only through our organization but the other great organizations that are out there, right, because um, we're not the only one that's that's great and doing great stuff. We have a niche of it. But they're seeing that, hey, you know, and part of it's social media, right? But they're seeing now that they don't, they're not in this box, right? And the world's really their oyster um, as long as they do like they should be doing on a mission, which is one, and if you're listening out there and you're about to transition, do it as a team, right? The best thing about the military is you were surrounded by a team, right? You didn't do anything by yourself. You're a sniper, you have a spotter, right? You're on a fire team, you're surrounded by three other people who are four or five, you know, if you're in the Marine Corps or whatever it is. You know, you're on a ship doing whatever. If you're flying a plane, you got a wingman, right? You never do anything alone. Why Why in the heck would you do transition by yourself? So don't do it alone, right? Ton of programs out there, ton, ton of organizations. Find the one that fits you best. Um, don't do it alone. Two, think about your transition and don't do it. <laughs> A month before you get now, which is incredible. I still bump into folks retiring and they're like, yeah, I get out in three weeks. I'm just getting to this. And it's like, well, you know, it's an, it, transition takes time on the front end and, you know, the lead up work. It's when I go to the units and visit them and we, we're trying to go to each unit, uh, major, at least the major units, you know, kind of the group re- regimental level once, once a year and stuff. But, you know, it's two year process. And most of my Pure organizations out there are really advocating it's a two-year process. And for me, when I tell particularly the retirees have been in for longer or, or folks getting out after 12 years that, you know, that, that two-year out mark, you really just need to be thinking about life, right? Talk to your wife, talk to your family. If you're single, just figure it out kind of where it is you want to go, kind of what type of lifestyle, right? Like 
hey, do I have legs? You know, am I do, do hey, I want to be a bazillionaire when I get done, so I'm going to run hard, you know. Think about what direction you want to do. Evaluate your finances. It's still incredible, you know, one of the big pieces that we talk about um, with folks we've started. That's one of the key things we, we brought on the program was because we kept seeing it is wh- what are your finances like? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's still amazing that we still got an incredible number of people in the military that are kind of hand to mouth, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, they don't have savings. And, and where that manifest is like, okay, Transition takes time and you're in this weird space. Companies don't hire until you're in about that 90 day mark. Nobody's going to say a year from now you're getting out, we're going to hold a job for you. You got to be in that 90 to 120 day, maybe 120, but usually in the 90. So you're going to be in this position. If something falls through, you might, you might have to go a month or two months or whatever. And, and I always ask, how long can you go? And, and it's shocking some of the, the answers I get. So two years out, really think about your financial situation. If you're not where you need to be, really start pulling hard on some levers to get there because you're not pressured to take suboptimal, you know, you're not going to make suboptimal decisions because you're, oh my gosh, I don't want, you know, I'm going to burn our bank account to zero and we'll be out on the streets and all that stuff, right? So that's, that's one of the key things besides just the right answer, having some good financial stability, right? It's make sure it doesn't put you in a suboptimal place if something doesn't fall through. Because like I told one guy, he was literally 30 days from getting exactly what he wanted, but his financial pressures were such that he's like, I've just got to go take this contracting job, right? And it's just like, uh, you know, and, and now he's kind of doing that and it's he's off track, right, yeah. from, from where he needs to be, so... Two years out, start thinking about that. It's shocking how many people are like, well, I just talked to my wife. And it's like, wait, six months ago we talked, and you didn't talk to your wife about any of that, right? So talk to your family because I, what I find, particularly with retirees, fully 50% of them are saying, hey, we're going here. Well, why are you going to Ohio? Well, my wife's family's from there. I drug her all around, so she wants to be here. So that's where we're going to settle. That's where I'd like to find something, which is fine. It's just, you know, because a lot of people are like, I didn't know she wanted to go Ohio until we had this discussion, right? So have that discussion. So get your head straight, right? And then really the the going hard, right? That's like your preseason. So the season is about that year mark because that's when you really got to go hard. And you can go further out. At one point we were doing two years, but we found that one year is when you really just need to be putting your head down and evaluating yourself, going through the process of understanding yourself even deeper than what you did in that year leading up, figuring out what it is you want to do through the exploration phase, and then networking and getting in contact with people. The Army has a skill bridge program, you know, that you can be up to six months out. We want people to kind of arrive at a position about the time that skill bridge is starting to go, windows open for them where they're like, I think this is what I want to do, and that way we can get them into that program that's aligned to that so they can say yeah, yes or no. And we've mm-hmm. had fully 50% of the people say, that's not what I want to do, which is it's like course of action screening, it's right? Kind of, it's the whole yeah. reason behind it. Yeah. yeah, it's exactly. It's like if it was 100% successful, it means people are probably taking suboptimal things, right? right? So it's as important to say, that's not what I want to do. Let me back out and go do something, which kind of goes back to, yeah. do you have a buffer to be able to absorb that? But so that one year period, we want it all connected. We don't want any kind of, well, I was, you know, networking. I had to take a break and, you know. And then you want it to be connected, like when they're networking, it's like, when do you get out? Oh, seven months from now. Okay, let me pass you on so those conversations are fresh and connected and stuff. You can do it before, but really where it's impactful is kind of that time window leading right up to getting out. So 
that's that's our sweet spot for the window um there. So how, how do they find you then? And what is the first step in the process once they locate you? Yeah, so for us specifically, if you're an operator, so an SF guy, Ranger Regiment, uh, the air crew, so basically easy way to evaluate it. Have you been through an assessment selection for the special operations community and successfully passed that? So if that's you, then you can go online to www.sotf, Sierra Oscar Tango Foxtrot, like SOTF, like the old special operations task force, SOTF.org. Uh, on there, you know, take a look at the website um, and uh, fill out the form there. It says process, and we have it way at the bottom, and we put it there for a reason. So you got to read through the process and kind of what's expected before you actually get to the form. Fill out that form, and it'll come to me, and you'll be having a conversation with me first uh, to do the screening, or if you just want to have a conversation. Otherwise, you know, feel free to reach out to me. It's uh, Tommy T O M M Y at S O T F dot org. So even if you're not a special operator and you want to talk about transition, you know, it's, uh, I'm here to have that discussion with you. I had a great Sergeant Major, who, you know, first it was like, hey, Sergeant Major, we got to get to this meeting. But his comment to me always was, hey, I always got a minute for a soldier. So that guy was late for more staff meetings. And I think he was probably using it as a tactic too, but he was, <laughs> he was late for so many meetings because he would, he would, he would, Every time somebody needed to talk to him, he would take a minute, you know, for a soldier. So if you're just out there and you want to talk about transition, feel free to give me a call, shoot me an email, you know, we'll, great. we'll set some time up uh, for yeah. you. And the other thing out there, if you're a veteran who's transitioned, right, you've been through this journey, successful, not successful, you know, you probably kind of got to a place, you need to be given back. Like everybody's looking for some congressman or some president or, or somebody to solve the problem. The only way we're going to solve some of the veterans' issues out there is uh, is veterans solving it, pure and simple. It's like veterans hiring. The only way we're going to get a tipping point is if we get enough veterans out there who are navigating through the ranks of these organizations and then instead of always looking forward, looking back, right? It's like a ranger school rope bridge. Turn around or coming out of a ravine, right? Turn around, put your hand out, help somebody else behind you, right? Um, somebody reaches out to you on LinkedIn, answer it mentor them help guide them so take care of each other i mean it's that's that's how we as veterans are really going to solve some of these veterans issues and you know just start connecting it's it's not the vfw telling war stories right shooting people in the face and all that yeah. stuff in fact every time i get around veterans i i haven't heard a war story in forever because nobody really talks about it. they just enjoy yeah. being around each other but you know get connected be an advocate there's tons of great programs out there right like four blocks another good program you know uh, there's Honor Foundation out there. There's Commit Foundation. There, there's a lot of programs out there, right? There's very niche programs. Like if you want to go in the technology world, and there's there's very niche programs that help transition specifically in the technology world. There's a lot of resources like Microsoft certifications and technology stuff. There's project management. All of it you can get for free. You just got to go out, kind of look at it. It's the information's out there. You know, go talk to your transition office. Look online. Do use LinkedIn, you know, if you're, if you're a Marine Raider, you know, type in Marine Raider out there and you'd be surprised at what pops up. If you're a SEAL, do the same thing, you know, Ranger. Um, are you guys on social media? We are. We're on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Same so. thing, Soda? Yep. I, I think uh, the Instagram's a little bit different, but if you put in, you know, SOTF, it'll pop up, but I think it's the Soda or something like that um, out there on that one. Um, my director of ops, Lauren, is the one who manages that. I'm we'll make sure we tag you. Yeah, I'm for the, sure. 
I'm the old crusty guy and stuff. She, <laughs> she's probably going to chastise me at well, the end of this. And then listen, some of these guys are listening to this thing and they're going to go, wow, I got to go to the old man's office and talk with him first, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, it's not like that. That whole intake call is really just getting getting to know folks. And yeah. uh, one, just, hey, what, let me tell you about the program and what it is. And for me, it's super important. You know, yeah. it uh, takes a lot of my time, but I think it's super important just to help me connect, keep connected to kind of who's coming in and, and, and stuff there. So. Well, it's it's very nice of you, too, to give of your time because you're trying to run an organization. So, I mean, you know, to get that opportunity to speak to you of somebody who's managing the program, understands what's going on. And like you're saying, it gives you a pulse the other direction. Well, they're getting... Um, an opportunity to speak to a leader who really understands what's going on. So take that input. If you're listening to this and you're one of those individuals that takes Tommy's time, you know, really take in what's being said and the direction that you're providing me or that individual because uh, it, it sounds like it could be really beneficial even though if it's a short call, you know, yeah, in terms of direction. Yeah. And, you know, I, a lot of times I just did one um, uh, Friday, late Friday. Actually, it was Friday evening and uh, – you know, sometimes it's like, hey, here's what I'm looking to do. And, and it, sometimes it's hard to know what resource are out there. And there's thousands of veterans resources and some of them are pretty shady. Some of them are super exceptional. Right. So having somebody help navigate that is, is you know, something we, we'd like to do as well. And then for folks out there, it's again, you know, the call to action is get involved. You can be involved with us. So it doesn't matter if you're a special operator, if you want to be kind of a mentor you know for folks you had a really positive transition out there and you want to be a mentor then shoot us an email it's on the site you know it's called get involved on our website and or shoot us something on social media and we'd love to have folks because again we want to build basically a platoon or a team around these operators they transition so they know that hey there's success out there and and all these kind of unknowns you can get there because I used to tell people, right, the reason we would go into crazy stuff and, you know, my craziest story is I, read, I rode in a pickup truck with uh, two SF guys covered in corn and a tarp, <laughs> right, as we were being infilled into this area that we had never been in before early in Afghanistan, and uh, we didn't even have ISR covering us. We were just on comms with, with the team, which was like 30 miles away, right? We couldn't see out of this truck or anything. But the reason we did it is because I, I knew the, that folks were going to come get us, right? I knew my team would come get us. I knew dudes would get on a helicopter back, yeah. you know, at the base and come get us. So it's the same thing for transition, right? It's know that there's teams of people out there who are going to kind of help you through this. And that's what we're trying to build. And, and if you have an organization out there and you want to partner with us, you provide something niche, you know, additional medical stuff or, you know, we – entrepreneurship we don't specifically do we want to connect people with organizations others who have been entrepreneurs because we want people with experts on each specific so if you're out there let us know and we, we want to build these partnerships out there so again build our own network and team of teams to to really you know help people transition great and, and if you ran a run a transition program i haven't heard of reach out to me because i get I'll, I'll probably get a lot of phone calls out of this. I probably talk to 20 people a week that are non-soft about transition. And again, I sort of do air traffic control, give some advice, and then point them in a place that I, I think is a great organization is going to fit their needs. Tommy, I'm so glad that we finally got a chance to hook up and get you in here to the Mentors Military Podcast. And thanks for taking time out of your 
busy schedule and especially on a weekend like this to be able to come down no it's awesome uh, it's been great to see her yeah. and talk with you guys brought back some old memories like pete and phil i didn't think i'd remember that. <laughs> yeah. yeah and like a join system too Jeez. yeah 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 laser disc you have to go you have to google yeah. that one right I, i'm old enough i've seen the laser discs they were around oh, i have one back at the house i'll show it to you all right tommy thanks so much again yeah absolutely thanks for having me